Good evening. And welcome. And welcome. It's episode six of the Crash and Burn movie podcast. Indeed it is, sir. Um, have to report, after the runaway success of episode four, where we got over 70-odd downloads, episode five was a little bit underwhelming. We know we have seven hardcore listeners, that's for sure. So we'd like to thank those seven people now. Personally. Yeah. And if we only end up with six downloads after this episode, one of you is a bastard. And we know where you live. We know where your children are. if you can tell us which one of the seven you are, <laughs> you're definitely a bastard. But no, I'm sure we'll do better this time. Yeah. Um, I, I think it was, um, we pushed the podcast a lot. A lot of people listen to it, probably haven't caught the uh, the one after. It's all yeah. on demand. Yeah, um, they'll catch up if they, they want to hear it again. Do. It is they a good episode, do. I highly recommend it. It is a good episode, but we do have to apologise. A little bit of um, a little bit of issues with some of the um, sound quality there. There's a bit of a humming noise there, but we did not have a Buddhist monk in the background making that noise. Yeah. Um, it's what's known, if you're in the industry, as ground hum. Um, which uh, is a Buddhist monk on the ground floor. Absolutely. Yeah. Ground hub is a very short Buddhist monk making that noise. It was that we had far too much crap plugged into a very small electrical socket. And um, I believe that your computer was switched on as well. Yes, it was, yeah. And there was all manner of electrical... And the fridge. Things, and the, the fridge is always a, a, an issue. The fridge yeah. has been very well behaved today, but... Uh, uh, yeah. I promise that on the future show I'm going to do the refrigerator is so bad it's good. Fantastic. I look forward to that one. But hopefully we'll have less uh, background noise. Um, at some point, um, when we start taking this more seriously... No, nah, I don't want to uh, take it more seriously. It's more, we may possibly more invest way. in a noise gate, uh, some decent cables and a decent means of recording. But till then, there will probably be a little bit of hum, but not as much as the previous episode. Okay. Right. With that out of the way, just a very quick mention. Um, we have kindly been made the um, the episode sponsor, you know, the secret sponsor for a what would you say rival rival podcast? Are they well, we say they'd be rival podcasters. I yeah. What the hell kind of accent was that? Well, they accused... will lead on to that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So we Good are the secret uh, secret sponsor for. Um, uh, I will find the name of the podcast here. It's 101 Films You Should Have Seen podcast. I believe the two chaps who host it are called Ian and Lewis, and they're quite funny, and it's quite a good podcast. Hello, Ian. Hello, Lewis. And you can check it out. And if this is wrong, this is the uh, this is what they put on the feed for their podcast. So if this doesn't work, it's their fault. But uh, you can check out their website and their podcast at http uh, colon two forward slashes 101filmsyoushouldhaveseen.com um, Their podcast is quite funny. They don't have as much hum on their podcast as we have. And they accused us of being wurzels. They did, in fact, say that we both had lovely West Country accents, which is a blatant lie. I have got a lovely West Country accent. Oh, from London. You've got a Cockney Wanker accent, haven't yeah. you? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I do Birmingham as well, like, you know. Yeah. See what you've done. You've made him do shit impressions of other accents. So. Oh, no, we're doing them all, all episode long now. It's all your fault. So there you go. The seven listeners that you promised us will now be switching off in droves, I'm sure. But, uh, yeah, get, get it right. I've got a West Country accent because I'm from the West Country. You haven't got a West Country accent, have you? No, I've got a London accent. Because you're from London. Yeah, London. Okay, the two are very different, and um, I'm pretty sure that wherever you're from, you probably have issues with telling the difference. But there you go. 
Yeah. Uh, we've also been instructed by them to start a bit of a Blur versus Oasis style dissing match. Um, Only if they're Oasis, because I can't stand Oasis. Well, I think one of them actually agreed to be Oasis, so we've won this anyway. Oh, so we won it. <laughs> we have. I'm, the, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a rock DJ normally. Oasis are shit. They always have been. I would have to concur there, although I did quite like Blur. I do like Blur. The Blur are a great band. You know? There we go. Um, Not exactly cattle mutilation, but... Is that a band that you like? No, cattle decapitation. <laughs> cattle, de- cattle decapitation. Yeah. They make Cannibal Corpse sound a bit like uh, JLS. I see. Mm. I see. Cool. Right, so, yeah, we were their secret sponsor, so we've plugged them a bit, and we've also dissed them a bit, as they told us to. Happy dissing. Yeah, you wankers. Oh, absolutely. A bit of extra dissing there, just yeah. thrown in. Just um, that one's on us. <laughs> yeah. You reckon you might send us all of seven listeners. Um, I think we can top that. We are going to send you less. That's what's <laughs> going to happen. But uh, hopefully, by <coughs> those seven and, and our six sure. fair weather listeners, <laughs> you never know. Um, well, Deb's listens, doesn't she? No, no, my wife hasn't listened to it. Oh, because no, my, my, because, because my fiance listens, so. There you go, there you go. Yeah. I don't get a lot of support from, <laughs> from my. Uh, well, you married her, don't you? Well, support dies yeah. when the yeah. ring goes no, on the She finger. has to listen to my whiny voice all the time. She doesn't want to hear me. <laughs> the rest of it. I thought she wanted to hear my voice, though. That's the thing. <laughs> well, there we go, there we go. How do you know your other half isn't just listening to it from my voice? Is that because I've got a lovely West Country accent? It's because you've got a lovely West Country accent. Yeah. What the fuck kind of accent is that? We've ascertained that he can't do a West Country accent at all. Yeah, but no, but yeah, but no, but etc. Yeah, there we go. Anyway, let's get on. We Otherwise, we're going to be sitting here shit all evening. We've probably added like uh, 10 minutes that we haven't got to the front of this podcast. Shall we look at what we've been watching? Yeah, uh, what we've been watching. Right, I've got a pretty pitiful um, list of examples. Do you just want me to go through mine? Well, you start, and then we'll go back. I mentioned last week I started watching Salute of the Jugger. I finished Salute of the Jugger. Can't tell you who directed it. Can tell you no more than last week that Rudger Howe was in it, and it was about a variation of brutal, futuristic, post-apocalyptic rugby played with a freshly skinned dog's skull. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Not particularly high art or anything, but... um, Really enjoyed the action. It'll take your brain out movie, would you say? Uh, absolutely. My brain was pretty much disengaged the whole time. It looked good. The film did desert. Some very uh, brutal injuries and stuff. But, um, yeah, it was uh, an, an interesting uh, imagination, uh, imagining of the, the post-apocalypse, and I quite enjoyed it. Um, what have you watched? Well, I'll start off with uh, one of your recommendations from last week. Deathbed. The Bed That Eats. What an epic film. Um, every bit as craptastic as you described it. Were you taken by surprise, even though I described it in detail? I was taken by surprise of exactly how classically bad that film is. It, it's, a, it's a tough one. to. I, I, I have to mention, I probably haven't been able to top it this, this I episode. couldn't. I, don't, I think you'll never be able to top that. That's going to be the... Do you reckon that was even better than Night of the Leapers? No, oh, it makes Night of the Leapers look kind of semi-intelligent. At least you can understand the plot of Night of the Leapers. This is very Even true. though it is a very silly plot, you know? And as for sort of like uh, Doctor of Death with the wrestling women, it makes that look like Citizen Kane, you know? <laughs> can I point something else out halfway through? I didn't mention this before. Your description of, was it Doctor... What was your film? Was it Doctor of Doom? Yeah. Um, you kept referring to the hybrid gorilla with the... 
No, the, the, the woman with the gorilla's brain. Yeah. Or is it a man? I don't know whether it's a man or a gorilla. You got his name for the first half of your description. Richard. I was calling him Gorgo, wasn't I, instead of Gormar? I thought it was the other way around. Uh, Gormar is his real name. I think okay. I called him Gorgo a couple of times, but that was because earlier we mentioned Gorgo, the British classic Godzilla ripoff. Is that where it came from? That's where it came from. Right. So my mind was kind of derailed slightly. There we go. Never mind. Yeah, so I apologise for that. Anyway, so you watched uh, Death Bear, the Bear that Eats. Yeah, every bit I just... Still as baffled as you were about what was going on. Fantastic. I began watching your previous uh, week, So Bad It's Great, uh, Lep 5, Leprechaun 5, Lep in the Hood. And he's up to no good. He's up to no good. Um, What's the one? Uh, Get off me gold, thieving hoods, you've got more... One tiger woods, yeah. (laughs) Fuck's sake, That was mental. Warwick Um, Davis's finest hour and a half. I haven't got to the end of it yet, because I've, I've run out of time. I had to watch a few of the films. I had to get those watched in time for, mm. for this. So you've yet um, to meet the zombie fly girls, I've then. yet to meet the zombie fly girls. I have to say, I was a, a very huge fan of um, Ice-T's uh, con- weapon-concealing afro at the beginning, <laughs> when he pulls a baseball bat out of his <laughs> <Yeah>. afro. <laughs> so, yeah, baseball bat out of the afro. Bit of a classic. It is. It is. Um, right. Um, what else have you watched? Um... Well, I was flicking through on TV, again on Film 4, like I always mention Film 4, I like Film 4, and uh, I found a screening of Enemy at the Gates was just about to start. Uh, Jean-Jacques Anoud's 2001 classic war movie of duding snipers in the ruinous of uh, Stalingrad. So, loosely based on the true story, Jude Law's in it as the shepherd from the Urals, um, and he become, who's uh, been popping off Nazis left, right and centre, and he's become a um, post the boy for the Soviet Army, and then so the Nazis get in Ed Harris to take him on. Um, classic That's a film. Fantastic film. Yeah, it? and I didn't realise how strong the, the supporting cast was as well. You got Ron Perlman uh, playing Jude Law's kind of operational sniper unit. I watched this a few weeks back, mm. and I didn't realise it. It's only since watching a lot of Ron Perlman films afterwards. Ron Perlman is great, but he's got this ridiculous accent in yeah. of the gates, which kind of spoils it a little bit for me now. Yeah, he he should have just played it normal because um, you've got Joseph Fiennes playing the political commissar. He's and he just does it in a straight English accent. He doesn't try to be Russian. You've got Bob Hoskins, superb as uh, Khrushchev. The guy that later went on to replace Stalin as leader of the Soviet Union. Absolutely. And the one that really surprised me, the young Gabriel Thompson. Who uh, playing Sasha? Who's this little kid that's kind of being a schoolboy double agent between the two snipers? Yeah, so that's Enemy at the Gates, two thousand and one. My, as I mentioned before, my um, so bad it's it's great. Probably, I mean, nothing could quite live up to um, uh, my you know, my discovery the of Deathbed, bed, the bed, the bed, bed that eats. Um, so I, the one that I've gone with, which I'll tell you about later. Um, I did try and top it. I did have another one lined up. I found a film. It's a direct-to-video 2003 horror called Monstered. spelled M-O-N-S-T-U-R-D. Yeah, literally, it's a play on words of monster and the word turd. Um, the basic synopsis of which there is an escaped criminal um, who escaped through a sewer system. I mean, he's crawling through every man of foulness known to man. Yeah, and at the same time, yeah. there's this evil professor who's got this strange goo and he's trying to do a bit of a live experiment by emptying it into the sewer system. And escaped criminal into a system and strange goo meat meat, and become some kind of 
crazy, basically, shit monster. Um, I didn't even get as far as him becoming the crazy shit monster. Uh, the first 15 minutes was so terrible. I think it wasn't that it was bad. It's not that they were trying. It was a, it was too self-aware. It was it became quite obvious they were playing it as bad as they could deliberately, mm. and it just was not working. It looked so poor, um, but it it didn't register as being shockingly funny, bad, or anything. It was just so bad. It was bad. So I abandoned Monstered, and I've gone with my original one. But we'll discuss that later. Yeah. Have you watched anything else? Yeah, last one that I'm going to mention is... Uh, sat down the other night and broke out my old VHS of Frankenstein Creative Woman. Uh, Terence Fisher's Hammer Classic from 1967. Terence Fisher, he was basically Mr. Hammer Horror when it comes to directing. Did the Gorgon, all the Dracula movies, all the Frankenstein movies, The Devil Rides Out, Quite a Mass of the Pit. Etc. 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 Basically, Peter Cushing revives his role as Victor Frankenstein. Uh, living has moved to Belgium, though not France or Germany, wherever he was before. And he's got this experiment where he wants to trap the souls of the recently recently dead in this machine thing that he's created. Um, his lab assistant is in a relationship with uh, Gorkel Christina. Lab assistant is called Hans. Um, who's the crippled daughter of the local cafe owner? And one night, three toffs come in. They humiliate the girl. Hans does some serious toff whooping, uh, beats them up. The toffs then come back looking for revenge and kill the cafe owner. And then Hans gets framed for the murder and guillotined. Um, uh, Christina sees him being, having, seeing him, his imp of the chop, sees his head come off, and then goes and throws himself into the river and drowns. Uh, Cushing playing Frankenstein then gets a hold of both bodies. That's always um, a bad idea, isn't uh, it? He, 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 he restores all the kind of scarring and crippledness of the crippled Christina and then sticks both souls in the same body for some reason that's never actually adequately explored. That's bizarre. And um, basically, as the two souls battle for control of Christina's body, uh, it goes out on this revenge against the toffs that killed them. Why did he use her body instead of... Was it because it was decapitated? Yeah, he couldn't use... So he didn't... You can only hold the soul for so long, so he... Okay. But why he kept it in Christina's body, I don't know. But anyway, a girl with, two, with, a, with her and her lover's soul in the same body. And um, revenge is on the cards, so... Good film. Classic movie. It's probably one of the best of the Hammers. Mm. Um, Peter Cushing, I was reading on Peter Cushing's website, uh, or his tribute site, whatever it is, and he's rated it as said it's one of the roles that he's most satisfied with. And even though it's very typical Hammer... Quite hammy. There's loads of kind of you know bodish ripping and kind of daylow red blood and all that kind of thing. Um, and the plot is a little bit nonsensical. It actually flows quite nicely, and it makes a what would have been a really crap film in any other hands. Cushing and the rest of the cast and Terence Fisher's director turn it into a half passable movie. Excellent. So very enjoyable. That's Frankenstein Creative Woman, 1967. Right, well, let's move on to uh, Coming Soon. Do you yep. want me to go first? You're after you, sir. Okay. Um, been a bit thin on the ground looking at There's a lot of interesting films coming out, but uh, these two grabbed my... Uh, well, this, well, I'll go with this first one. This first one grabbed my attention. It's Excision. It's a horror comedy starring Tracy Lords and Anne Lynn Cord. Um, don't know a huge amount about it. I know it's based on... There was a 2008 short film with the same title. Um, I didn't note down the direct, director's name. Um, mm-hmm. 
But it's one that I'll keep an eye on. This apparently the film depicts the life of a disturbed and delusional high school student with aspirations of a career in medicine and the extremes to which she goes to earn the approval of her controlling mother. She fantasizes performing surgery on the other students. It looked like a blood and guts in the emergency room type uh, thing. Um, it looked very interesting. I know the short film was very highly rated. The feature-length film doesn't seem to have caught the imagination as much, um, but that's coming out fairly soon. It just looked fairly interesting. Yeah, sounds interesting, yeah. What's your first one? Um, first one is entitled R.I.P.D., and it's coming out June, July next year. Director, You're looking a long way ahead, aren't you? Yeah. Um, Robert Schalker uh, is... Robert Schwanka, whatever his name is. <laughs> Uh, I've written a kind of my own writing here. It's the bloke that did the Time Traveller's Wife. Ever seen that? I Time Traveller's Wife. On when I went on honeymoon. Yeah. Um, if I'd have paid like a fiver, I could have got earphones to listen to the sound of it, but they were showing it on the plane. Ah oh, right. Um, it was Eric Banner. I don't like Eric. Banner. No, it's, it's not a bad film actually. It's quite interesting. But anyway, it's based on the Dark Horse comic Rest in Peace Department. Uh, basically, it's set in this world where kind of the zombie apocalypse has been happened and controlled. So you've got zombies wandering around and people wandering around. Okay. And um, basically, cops that get killed and end up as zombies join the rest in peace department, which they police the zombies um, while the rest of the cops police the living. And uh, you've got um, Kevin Bacon playing a cop that's recently been killed that then decides he's going to go off and... Uh, join the Wrestling Peace Department and uh, try and track down the bloke that snuffed him. Um, interesting uh, uh, supporting cast. Jeff Bridges is in it. Ryan Reynolds is in it. Um, it's, it's played as a, as a supernatural action comedy, apparently. So, okay. And it's based on a highly popular comic book. And I've seen a couple of kind of... not. There's not, I didn't see any trailers for it, but I saw some production stills. Sure. I think it was quite interesting. So, uh, yeah, it's coming out in July next year. R.I.P.D. Fantastic. Um, the next one I'm going to mention is actually out now. It's uh, Killing Them Softly. Uh, Brad Pitt, Ray Liotta and James Gandolfini all star in it. This is adapted from George V. Higgins' novel set in New Orleans. Uh, Killing Them Softly follows professional enforcer Jackie Cogan, who's got the same surname as me. Wow. Uh, played by Brad Pitt. Who investigates, absolutely, who investigates a heist that occurs during a high-stakes mob-protected poker game. Um, looks, I've heard fantastic things about it. Um, the director, again, who I haven't wrote, I can tell I did these in a hurry. Mm. Um, director's very highly rated. This film is highly rated. I believe it's the same director that did the, um, the Jesse James, uh, film that Brad Pitt starred in. That Mm. is also extraordinarily highly rated. Um, which I haven't seen yet, but I think I'm going to check this one out when I get a chance. That's Killing Them Softly. Which is, um, I believe, on a limited uh, theatrical run at the moment. Right. I've got another one that's going ahead a long way till July next year. Um, but I was looking through some trailers for upcoming films and I saw this one. I thought I've got to include it. The Monkey King, directed by Chiang Pu Soi, uh, who's one of the um, new up-and-coming Hong Kong movie directors, uh, had some big international hits already with Dog Bite Dog, Bite Dog and Shamo. Um both kind of big kind of Hong Kong films. And basically it's a big budget film based on the Chinese classic novel, The Journey to the West, as filmed in the Monkey TV series. Okay. Um, 
Uh, Donnie Yen plays monk, play, is playing the monkey, and uh, Chow Young Fat is playing the Jade Emperor. So it is a feature-length version of Monkey, yeah. effectively. Um, I just saw a couple of trailers up there, and it's kind of basically it's uh, there's this monkey god spawned in a by a, in some kind of squabble between two other Chinese gods, and uh, he, he does something to offend the Jade Emperor, and the Jade Emperor then sends him on a quest to guard a Buddhist monk that's questing it that's going from China to India to bring the bring the scriptures of Buddhism into into back to China. And it's a novel that was written in about 13th century or something I've like that. I've read it. It's based on Dear Monkey, which I used to own a copy of. Yeah. Um, obviously, probably translated many, many yeah. times. Well, it's well. So the, the official name for the original journey is called Monkey Journey to the West. Yeah. But um, like I said, I saw a few uh, clips. It's kind of sword and sorcery. It's martial arts. It's kind of huge epic armies piling into each other. It looks jaw-dropping, as a lot of these Hong Kong epics do. Absolutely. Um and I said it's a classic story. Um, Donnie, both Donnie Yen and Xiao Yong Fat are top-rate actors. So, you know, hopefully it's going to be a good one. Comes out next year. The Monkey King, it's called. Cool. Got any more? I've got two little bits of movie news that uh, kind of caught my eye. Um, first of all, this is a film where production is due to start uh, next month in November. Um, the Alan Partridge movie. This has been on on the back burner since 2004, but um, uh, scripts by Steve Coogan and Amano Iannucci, um, again, that cooked up the whole Steve Coogan, uh, Alan Partridge TV series. Mm. And um, although the plot's a closely guarded secret, it's not Alan in the USA. They've made that point very clear. And um, those of you who haven't seen the Alan Partridge TV series, especially if you live in it, it's about this inept TV presenter whose career's on the slide and he's trying to reinvent himself. Constantly. <laughs> Constantly. And with hugely comic effect, because he's a really sad, pathetic character. Um, God, a bit like Mr Bean for grown-ups. Now, this is the thing. Um, Alan Partridge, quite, I would say, mm. kind of cult success in the UK. It's not really mainstream, but no. it's considered to be very, you know, very good comedy. But... Who is this film for? Is it for the handful of people that used to watch the TV show? I don't know, because bear in mind, Steve Coogan is quite a big box office in the States. Because the, um, yeah. what was it, the Keith Lemon film came out. I didn't see that one. I haven't seen it. I can't, I, I'm not a, big I'm fan not a Keith, Keith Lemon, Lemon fan, so. Um, but I had no idea who was going to watch that. Maybe slightly more people might watch the Alan Partridge one. Um, and I'm sure it will be funny. I would like to see it. Yeah. I don't know really... They can't have huge expectations. I no. don't think the character would export I mean, to America well. The director is Declan Lowry. Um, basically, as the guy that created Father Ted, directed Cold Feet, and um, directed most of the second and third series of Little Britain and loads of other TV stuff, you know? They're looking for a domestic audience. I yeah, think. I think I they're looking for a domestic audience on States. this one. Um, okay. It's low budget. It's going to be filmed around London and Norwich. Um, so they're hoping to get it out August next year. Production filming starts next month. Okay. And then, oh, and then while that's filming, director Declan Nowry is also in pre-production for his following film, which is a biopic of the fantastic British sporting hero Eddie the Eagle Edwards, starring uh, Ro- starring uh, Rupert Ron Weasley Grint as Eddie the Eagle Edwards. I think this is going to die on its ass. It probably will. It's going to be even more 
inept than Eddie the Eagle, Eddie Edwards. The Eagle Edwards was at his uh, sport. So, uh, and those of you in the States that don't know what we're talking about, just type Eddie the Eagle Edwards and uh, Winter Olympics into a search engine of your choice. All will be revealed. Do you know, I know for a fact, if any American listeners, any US listeners do do that, um, by and large, without wanting to make a sweeping generalisation, um, our our friends across the pond do like a winner. They're going to hate Eddie the Eagle Edwards. They probably the are. Biggest loser ever. Yeah. I mean, so. what attracted me to the film is it's got to be Rupert Grint's first film since the Harry Potter franchise ended. He'd done a couple before Harry Potter. Um, so yeah. Daniel Ratcliffe gets all the serious theatre and then he does the Hammer film, The Woman in Black, and Rupert Grint gets Eddie the Eagle Edwards. Yes. Yeah. Bearing in mind, before Harry Potter, when he was aged about 11 years old, Rupert Grint did Thunderpants. About the boy that could fly a spaceship into space. So, uh, well, I guess he he, said it, he started from a very low mark. <laughs> exactly. Although yeah, Thunderpants yeah. is isn't a bad film if you're 11 year old and you take your brain out. So, oh, yeah. anyway, that's my that's my round up, my movie news roundup. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so we'll be back in a minute after a few messages. I'm Dangerous Jamie. Joining me as always is Sarah, uh, and we're going to talk to you about why you should be listening to the Gold Press Broadcast. Let's do that. Let's indeed. Why should they be listening to the Gold Press Broadcast? Um, well, firstly, because it's awesome, obviously. Obviously. I mean, that's a given, or a given. A given, yeah. You, you can expect um, nonsensical puns like that. Yeah. Um, with, with zero context. <laughs> absolutely zero context. But also, we, do, we review horror films. Mostly, we review horror films, I would say. Well, yeah, that's probably the bulk of what we <laughs> Do. Yep. We also look at new releases, uh, top five lists. Yep. We cover theme months. Yeah, we do some horror news. Yeah, tell us about the theme months that we covered. Um, we have done Horror Behind Bars. Yeah, we did Clown Town, where we looked at clown movies. We did. We've done Trash Kings. Trash Kings, where we looked at the films of Fred Allen Ray, Jim Wynorski, and David Dakota. Yeah, um, we've done a bunch of stuff. We've got Revenge Month in the works, Trauma Month. So, yeah, loads of stuff like that. Loads of stuff. So, if you like horror films, you should probably listen to the Godfrey Scorecast. Absolutely. We're here and we're ready to believe you. <laughs> so that's not all you can get. You can also get extra super bonus content when you subscribe to the feed. Tell about it, Sarah. Tell them. Tell them now. We do the Gold Quest Golden Tree, which is basically us shamelessly ripping off Mystery Science Theatre. Yeah, basically getting drunk, chatting over the top of the film and hopefully being quite entertaining, I think. There are two ways to find the show. You can find us over at iTunes by searching for the new Gold Press Gorecast. You can indeed. Or you can go to gorepress.com and read all the great reviews, news, interviews and everything all there alongside the podcast. Yeah. So come on, subscribe to the new Gore Press Gorecast. Tune in, drop out, stay spooky. <laughs> wow. I'd recommend this show to anybody. Anybody who's into smut. And we're back. In the room. In the room with the main bit of the show, the theme selection. Now, we um, we were struggling last time. We weren't sure what we were going to do. And then we had a bit of a, a random flash of inspiration. Yeah. Um, this episode's theme is planes, trains and automobiles. Now, before people leave in droves, because they don't like the film Planes, Trains and Automobiles, the quirky family comedy from the 80s starring John Candy and Steve Martin... Or, 
Well, we attract an audience of people who do love this film, who are going to be sadly disappointed. We're not talking about that We're one. We're not talking about that film at all. The theme selection is just that. We are talking about three films each. Mm. One that features a plane. One that one features a train. And, naturally, an automobile, or as we like to call it in this country... A motor car! A motor car. A broom broom. A broom broom. There we go. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, planes, trains, and... Automobiles. So we'll start with some planes, shall we? We are going to start with planes. Um, you going to go first? Yep. Uh, buckle your, stiffen your lips, people. Straighten your back. Because uh, we're about to talk about the uh, this, the greatest war movie of all time. Play the trailer. For those who fought in the Battle of Britain, it was a battle for survival. For the free world, it was a breathless moment in history. For failure would have plunged mankind into a new dark age. Never have so many owed so much to so few. I presume that there is no one who will deny that England should fight on, even though the remainder of the continent of Europe is dominated by the Germans. What's left of your army? Abandons weapons at Dunkirk. You're defenseless and just playing for time. Europe is ours. We can walk into Britain whenever we like. Don't threaten or dictate to us until you're marching up Whitehall. The war in France was over. The Battle of Britain was about to begin. Two sections, scramble! with certain defeat, fighting against insuperable forces, a miracle was achieved by a courageous few. Is everything up? It's a lot, sir. German military machine, a formidable enemy of thousands of planes, a sure weapon of mass destruction against a small and undermanned force. Yet the story of the RAF in the Battle of Britain is the modern David and Goliath. Frustrations. They've got the Rosen crowd. He left to drink at the Red Lion there, won't he? The people. The men and women who recreated vividly and realistically one of the great periods of our time. We're fighting for survival. Losing. We need pilots. And a miracle. Britain's finest hour, and the events and people who made it happen. 
was the Battle of Britain. Why they did it is history. How they did it has become the miracle story of our time. Years in preparation and production filmed where it happened. The skies once again screaming with bombers and fighters. One massive spectacle of a motion picture that attempts the impossible. And that achievement is the Battle of Britain. I got my number two. Canfield. You saw Canfield go down. It blew up. This is only the beginning. They won't stop now. What that was... Uh, Battle of Britain, 1969. Uh, what's known as the last and possibly greatest of the great British war movies. Those of you that don't know your history, I'll give you a quick run through the basic of the plot. It's May 1940. The German army is blitzkrieging its way through France and it drives the plucky Brits into the sea at Dunkirk. Britain stands alone against the Nazi menace. As a prelude to invasion, Goring's Luftwaffe seeks air superiority over the southern part of the UK and therefore launches an all-out attack. Meanwhile, back at, the air, back at the Air Ministry in London, Air Chief Marshal Downing, played by Laurence Olivier, is kind of musing at the fact that the British are hopefully outnumbered and that our young men have to shoot down their young men at a rate of four to one, even if we're just to hold steady with them. Basically, it's looking bleak. America's kind of taking bets on how long Britain will last. Um, Goring launches his kind of air force at the uh, radar stations and airfields across southern Europe. The, Brit the plucky Brits fight back in their Spitfires and Hurricanes against the Luftwaffe onslaught, but things are looking dark, and uh, it's and Dowding, one point, turned around and says, oh, Lawrence Olivier is Dowding, says, it's only a matter of days before defeat comes. Then... A fluke of miracle strikes. The, the thing, the incident, which I'll come to later, it changes not just the course of this film and history, but the whole course of World War II and world history as a, as a role. Um, a small group of German bombers get lost, and uh, instead of dropping their bombs on the docks at Hornchurch in Essex, kind of find themselves flying about 20, 20 miles a bit too, uh, too far from the northwest, and they bomb North London. This pisses off Winston Churchill who orders that within two days every available RAF bomber is laden with bombs and goes off to bomb Berlin. Of course, Hitler then does his lid and demands that Go um, gives his orders to Goring that the Luftwaffe divert their attacks from the RAF airfields to London. Although it, although it starts, it kills hundreds of civilians and horrific scenes of bomb cities, it gives uh, the embattled RAF a chance to recover their strength in numbers. And I'm not going to give the ending away, but... Uh, there's a big clue in the fact that we're doing this podcast in English and not in German. This is very true. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, uh, directed by Guy Hamilton, um, who was responsible for like, the early Bond movies, um, Goldfinger, Diamonds Are Forever, uh, a few others, plus things like Force Tenant for Navarone, etc. 
and later on in the 1970s turned down Make a Chance to Make the Superman films but um, I think he did well there, yeah um, it's one of these films where it's got the kind of great and the good of British acting in it uh, mentioned Laurence Olivier already there's Trevor Howard Christopher Plummer Michael Caine Robert Shaw Susanna York Ian McShane Kenneth Moore Egbert Fox Michael Redgrave Kurt Jurgens, and just loads and loads of others You've seen this film, haven't you? I have. Um, true enough, the actors are good. Yeah. But it's about the flying, isn't it? It is about the flying, which I'm just about to come to. The attention to detail in this film is absolutely astounding. Now, when I was a kid, I used to watch these old 1950s and early 60s war movies on telly. And I used to get really pissed off when they're supposed to be filmed. Oh, it's a bit of an of air, aeroplane and train anorak when I was younger. Getting pissed off and going, hang on, that's a Spitfire Mark 21. That wasn't built till 1946. What's that doing flying over the desert in 1940? But what they did in this film for the Battle of Britain to try and keep it as historically accurate as possible, they <coughs> made a list of every airworthy Spitfire in the world. They then got 27 of them and converted them all to look at least physically like Mark I and Mark IIs, which were the historically accurate ones. Um, they did the same with the six airworthy Hurricanes they could find, and built three replica Hurricanes, airworthy, plus quite a few Spitfire and Hurricanes to get blown up on airfields, you know, models and full-size models and that. So that took care of the British Air Force. However, for the German Air Force, um, they turned to the aid of the Spanish Air Force, who uh, during and after World War II built licence-built versions of Heinkels and Messerschmitts for their own use. They had loads of Stukas as well, did they? Not, not Stukas, not no. Not Stukas, no. no. Um, basically, the Spanish Air Force were just retiring their Heinkels and Messerschmitts. So they brought 27 uh, CSA CASA uh, 2.111s, which is their licence-built Heinkels, and 27 uh, Hispaniola uh, 1112M1s, which was the licence-built Messerschmitt 109s. And the 109s, they then sent off to an aircraft factory to kind of make them look like Messerschmitt 109E models, mm-hmm. which was, again, authentic. Um, they found one airworthy Stuka, which they used. Are you saying all the Stukas in that film is just one Stuka? No, they built two full-size replicas, two half-size replicas, and a shed load of radio-controlled models, ah. which they used. Um, add in three genuine 1940s German Junkers 52 transport planes, and then, just for completion, the two American B-25 Mitchell bombers that they converted into aerial camera platforms using the gun turrets with cameras mounted in the gun turrets. If this was made today, how much would it have cost? Um... Well, it cost. Could 60... you even make, could you even make it now? With all Probably the not. Models? No. So that was kind of. A I one... mean, because these days, so what it cost to do that then? These days, you could probably make twelve films in, with CGI. I suppose. Yeah. Well, I mean, also coming back to what I talk about Enemy at the Gates, there's a sequence where they there's some fantastically computer graphicized rendered Junkers 88s bomb Stalingrad. Yeah. You know, you could do it that way without having to. Enemy at the Gates is fairly convincing, mm. but there is a realism to... Yeah, I mean, like I said, it was filmed over South England. Uh, the airfields they used were Duxford and North Wild. Uh, North Wild. Um, Duxford, they actually blew up an entire hangar. You can actually go to the Duxford... Now, the Duxford uh, airfield is now the Imperial War Museum's aircraft collection. 
and you can still see the ruins of the hangar. It's got a little sign hammered into the ground. This was blown up during the filming of the thing about the Britain. They actually did drop bombs from some of the planes, dummies, but um, filmed all over the south of England. And yes, when the Heinkel crashes into the sea, that is a stuntman crashing a Heinkel into the sea near the White Cliffs of Dover. You know, it's, there were some fatalities in the, the filming. Um, so, the yes, there was crash is supposed to be. No, that was two radio control Stukas. Oh, that was crash. two radio. No, the, it's making uh, good over there. Aces high was when the pilot got killed in the mid-air crash. Oh, it's a different. That's film. the World War One film with the biplanes. Oh, right. I thought sure there was some fatalities. There might be in somewhere, but it wasn't the mid-air crash. That, that was. Uh, on to what I was going to say next. Now, this film, I, when I first saw it, I think I was about seven or eight. And mm. My dad kind of suggested that I watch it. I think it was on, like, Sunday lunchtime. Now, for a film that's on Sunday lunchtime, a war film as well, mm. this is incredibly graphic. Some of those pilots get blown to smithereens. They There's get the shot up in the... bit cockpit. where the German guy on the high ankle, he's got his goggles, he gets shot in the head and his goggles oh, just fill up with blood. blood. Uh, that, that, for the a bit. Sunday lunchtime to a seven-year-old, he's terrifying. There's the bit with uh, Christopher Plummer when his Spitfire's going down in flames and his hands are burning and he's scrapping oh, at the cockpit yeah. to get out. You know, um, I said it is a kind of classic. It's warts and all. It's no, it's no romance of war in this. Absolutely not. This no. is kind of these are people from both sides fighting for survival. You know, and um, yeah, it is a little bit jingoistic, but. I'm not, and I'm not a great patriot for the UK, but I think that's one of the few parts in British history that you can be, that us Brits can be proud of. And is a, and I said, and it's, I still haven't seen a film since or before that's kind of deals with the Second World War in that kind of detail, that kind of historical accuracy, because it's it's to the letter. Although it's written from, a, it's based on a novel, The Narrow Margin, written by a guy called Derek Wood. But the narrow margin is basically a, fict- a fictional telling of the Battle of Britain using kind of fictitious characters to kind of tie in real-life events. Yeah. I've never seen a war film like it before or since. And I've seen some classics. I've seen The Bismarck and Longest Day and that. But this is... I don't know. This is The Dog's Bollocks. Absolutely. Made on a budget of $12 million, then the most expensive British film ever made. This is... 1965 to 1968, it was being filmed. The mind boggles how much that would translate to. Yeah. Today. And like you said, they would probably, <coughs> it but, would probably have to be CGI. Yeah, but it made it. itself, it made its money back because it stayed in the top ten of the British box office for well over a year and was a huge hit worldwide. So Absolutely. Um, like I said, one of my all-time favourite movies, I even mentioned it on my description on the website. So, uh, Battle of Britain, 1969. Tally ho, chaps, go watch it. What oh, excellent! Yes, from uh, a flying cinematic masterpiece, masterpiece, epic, in fact, to something completely different. Uh, play the trailer. Stand by for the most extraordinary chain of events ever swept up into high adventure. Hey, Larry, where's the forklift? Forklift! Just over there for the baggage water. Airplane. 
Airplane is drama. Uh, this is Dr. Brody at the Mayo Clinic. There's a passenger on your Chicago flight 209 or a little girl named Lisa Davis en route to Minneapolis. She's scheduled for a heart transplant. I want you to make sure that she's kept in a reclined position and that a continuous watch is kept on her IV. Airplane is action. Airplane is romance. I love you, Elaine. I love you. Airplane is music. There is only one river. There is only one sea. Airplane is dancing. Has the screen been so big? You ever been in a cockpit before? No, sir. I've never been up in a plane before. Peter Graves. You ever seen a grown man naked? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. My name is Roger Murdoch. I'm an airline pilot. Leslie Nielsen. This woman has to be gotten to a hospital. A hospital? What is it? It's a big building with patients, but that's not important right now. Lloyd Bridges. Johnny, what can you make out of this? This? Well, I can make that. Robert Stack. All right, Steve, let's face a few facts. And we hope you enjoy the rest of your flight. Julie Haggerty. By the way, is there anyone on board who knows how to fly a plane? Can you fly this plane and land it? Robert Hayes. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. I've got to get out of here. Incredible adventure the screen has ever created. He's right the big news is airplane. Right, my choice is airplane from 1980. Um, again, here we are with the. Uh, Surely you can't be serious. We're, we're going to get to that. Um, again, you're making me feel incredibly stupid by featuring one of the greatest uh, aviation films ever. And you're featuring one of the greatest comedies ever, so I what? am indeed. Yeah. I am indeed. Uh, Airplane, 1980, written and directed by Jim Abrahams um, of Police Squad, Hot Shots Part 1 and 2 fame. The and Big Bus David, and many others. Oh, yes. And David Zucker, also Police Squad, uh, Police Squad uh, Naked Gun 1 and 2 director. So, uh, uh Stars Robert Hayes, Lloyd Bridges, Julie Haggerty, and of course Leslie Nielsen, the late R.I.P. The late Leslie Nielsen, the late great Leslie Nielsen, absolutely. It's the one, the only, the original spoof classic, the cultural phenomenon that changed comedy and created a new genre. It's Airplane, 
Um, with the creation of Airplane, Abrams and Zucker almost single-handedly invented the spoof comedy genre, which in turn gave us the Naked Gun films, the Hot Shot films, Loaded Weapon, Scary Movie. They're still... They're movies. still coming out as a bit out of, fast. A bit out of fashion now, but for a while... It was it was good, but uh, this this movie is probably the blueprint for the spoof. Oh, we'll challenge that. But we'll come back to that later. We'll you come carry back on. to that. The history of the film is a very bizarre one. Um, Abrams, in an interview, suggests that the idea came about by accident. The writing and directing duo initially worked together in live sketch comedy in theatre and TV, and a big part of their writing was parodying um, commercials and adverts at the time. And they used to basically video long stretches of commercial TV to get at the adverts. And inadvertently, during one of the marathon video recordings, they taped the 1957 air disaster movie Zero Hour. Um, the plot of which is lifted almost wholesale, but given the spoof treatment. Uh, Abrams and Zucker attempt to sell this script and their attempts to, to sell it meet with abject failure. Uh, the Jew is no history in movies, and their script is considered so outlandish that no studio will go anywhere near it, so it's put on the back burner. Fast forward on a few years, and Hollywood director and close friend of theirs, John Landis, advised them to knock together a series of their live comedy sketches into a filmable script, which went on to become the cult anthology comedy Kentucky Fried Movie, which you've got, haven't oh, I've you? Got a, I've got an original VHS <laughs> copy of that. That is a ridiculous film. Um... Despite not being happy oh, well, can with I just the... Can uh, a second? Yes? Those of you listening at home, the next edition of this is going to be broadcasting feel around. Very good. I'm worried already. <laughs> Despite not being happy with the Landis-directed movie, it was a significant success and gave the duo the Hollywood clout they needed to get their next project off the ground, and they insisted that this time that they would also take the directional reins themselves. They took the inspired step of casting actors with no comedy pedigree at all. In fact, they're mostly known for their square-drawed, straight acting, um, and in a lot of cases, these actors are lampooning their own previous work and images. Um, the plot's a very simple one. Ted Stryker, which I still think is a fantastic name, although that is the name of the main character from... The film that is actually parodying, mm. which I didn't know until I did the research, is a uh, traumatised ex-World War II combat pilot played by Hayes, makes a desperate attempt to save his failing relationship with air stewardess Elaine, played by Haggerty, um, by impulsively getting a ticket on her next scheduled flight and um, essentially stalking her for a better, better description, um, although not maliciously, it has to be said. Um, however, halfway through the journey, it would appear that half the passengers and crew who um, had the fish um, have all been poisoned. Um, unfortunately, this includes the pilot and the co-pilot, so Stryker must step up to the plate and land the plane. You were going to say... The spoof genre, you dispute yeah. this. Yeah, because um, Blazing Saddles was a few years before it. No, I must admit, I did think about this. When did Blazing Saddles come out? About 74. Blazing Saddles is not spoof all the way through, no. is it? No. But then uh, also, they, before they did Airplane, they did a film called The Big Bus, didn't they? I've seen The Big Bus. Oh, yeah, I've got it ready on VHS somewhere. The Big Bus is not a spoof as such. It's a comedy. Yeah. But lots of spoof things happen. Yeah. 
but it, I, I don't know whether you would call it an out and out. It is a comedy, more of a traditional comedy mm. with spoof elements. Um, but this takes spoofing to the, mm. the nth degree, I reckon. Yeah. There is literally a joke every, what, 20, 25 seconds almost, or a setup for a joke. Right, if you're anything like me, you will remember Airplane not for the plot or for what happens at the end, but it's for the all one about the jokes, isn't it? It's all about the jokes. I'm going to do a few of these now for you. Let's see how you do. Um, we've got to get this man to a hospital. Can't remember that one. It's a big building with patients, but that's not important <laughs> right, right now. now. Yes. Of course, you mentioned uh, Shirley. You can't be serious. Stop calling me Shirley. I am, and don't call me Shirley. Um, and then there's the building gags, like uh, Lloyd Bridges' character. Um, as the tension of the situation builds, he decides he's picked the wrong day to give up smoking, the wrong day to give up drinking, the wrong day to give up amphetamines, and finally the wrong day to give up, up sniffing glue. <laughs> and he ends up off his face hanging upside <laughs> down in the control tower. Uh, that is a cl- I remember watching that when I was a kid. That was fantastic. Um, you have the classic Staying Alive Saturday Night, uh, Saturday Night Fever parody. The inflatable autopilot, (laughs) (laughs) which I just crack up thinking about that. And the captain's increasingly inappropriate questions to the small boy in the cockpit, such as, have you ever seen a grown man naked? And have you ever been in a Turkish prison? (laughs) (laughs) There's a whole load of those that get really dodgy. And I like the, uh, the baseball player. Oh, yeah. I think the baseball, the co-pilot's yeah. a former basketball player. That's right, yeah. player. And, of course, there is the flight deck takeoff routine, which involves the... We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's your vector, Victor? <laughs> <laughs> I watched that on YouTube, and I nearly wet myself. It's fantastic. Um, and who can forget that the shit really does hit the fan? <laughs> now, a lot of these jokes... Um, Talking to some work colleagues, a lot of these jokes do seem a little bit childish and a bit dated now, but I think it's the inner seven-year-old that that, uh, stayed up really late to watch this film. (laughs) I don't know how I managed to convince my... I think, my my, again, my dad might have possibly uh, sort of uh, allowed me to watch it, and it's... uh, one of the few sort of um, film memories that we have of watching films together. I remember we watched The Battle of Britain, but also, on his insistence, uh, we watched Airplane. I still find it... I mean, it has dated. It does look of its time. But it's still one of those ones that you that you you'll either come across something you haven't noticed before. Absolutely. There's a clip you've forgotten. Or, yeah, exactly. What is a bit, you know. Uh, what's the one with uh, the, the journalist? So can we take some pictures? And they run up and nick a little picture. <laughs> yeah. off the wall. It's the literal gags. It is so silly and so completely full on for however long the film is. What about 80 odd minutes? It's minutes, quite yeah. an easy watch. Um, but it is absolutely hilarious. Must be noted that I've, well, Leslie Nielsen had a reasonably successful career. As a straight actor. But, yeah, in the uh, 50s and early 60s, yeah. Um, and up to that point, I mean, I think he was the captain of the Poseidon Adventure. Yeah, he was. Um, which is quite bizarre. Um, and he was in, uh, we've mentioned it a couple of episodes ago, we talked about Forbidden Planet. Was he in Forbidden Planet? He was Forbidden Planet, Planet. he wow. plays the captain, yeah. Excellent. Um, but from this film and ever onwards, he would be intrinsically linked with spoof comedy. Um, undoubtedly, he was born to, to, to make spoof comedy. 
and and I think he loved it. I think he, he did. He, I remember seeing him interviewed once, and he said the airplane was the film that relaunched his career because he was the aging leading man. Ah, uh, yeah, he would have had to have retired long, you know, long, long ago. It kept him in work more or less until he he passed away. Um, and uh, unbeknown to quite a lot of people, he was an absolute comic genius. As he was, was revealed yeah. By his uh, his later work in uh, the Naked Gun films and preceding that, the Police Squad uh, series. Um, so I love this film, despite being um, extraordinarily silly, and it is one of the silliest films I think I've ever seen. It's still probably joint one of my top films on my internet movie database list. So it's it's almost a guilty pleasure these days. But uh, when this uh, theme selection came up, I just had to do Airplane. That's uh, Airplane. Brief mention of the sequel before we sign off on that one? I'm a very brief mention. Yeah, the, uh, it's Abrams got his moments. Abrams and... Uh, is it Zucker or Zuckerman? I can't remember what I think. Zucker, I think his name is. I've forgotten that. Zucker, Zucker and Abrams, isn't it? Something like that, anyway, yeah. Yeah, it, the directing duo wanted nothing to do with, um, oh. with number two. Um it's got a few funny moments, but it's... But William Shatner bit with the... William Shatner is in it, which is always good for a laugh, but uh, um, I, I, if Airplane 2 is on, I won't bother to watch it, but if Airplane is on, I will catch some of it without doubt. So that's uh, Airplane 1980, and that's uh, that's Airplanes out of the way. That's, yeah. Uh, well, Planes, as this, yeah. this selection goes. Shall we move on to Trains? Woo-woo! There we go. What have you gone for with uh, Trains? Well... This one, well, I was going to go for a, um, a, a classic eating comedy, the Titchfield Thunderbolt, but I decided to go down that route for my automobile selection. So I changed to uh, this classic Amicus Portmento movie. Play the trailer. Terror. House of Horrors. Horrors the screen has never before dared to depict. The terrifying horror of the man killing vine with a human brain that creeps and kills. The terrifying horror of voodoo witchcraft. The terrifying horror of the dead. Entombed for 200 years that creeps its way back to terrorize the living. The terrifying horror of the young doctor forced to plunge a wooden stake into the breast of his beautiful bride. The terrifying horror of a dreaded man called Dr. Terror who, with his deck of mystic cards, could foretell destiny. Dr. Terror, who has a strange, horrifying knowledge of the past and future of every man and woman on Earth. The fear of the year clutches at your heart with hands as cold as death. Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. Yep, that was Dr. Terror's House of Horrors from 1965. Um... Directed by Freddie Francis, uh, who did lots and lots of uh, sort of like low-budget horror films for Hammer, Amicus, and Tygon movies. All the three classic houses that you know film studios that were churning out the low-budget horrors in Britain. 
Uh, he did either Frankenstein, Trog, Tales of the Crypt, amongst others. Um, basically, uh, we're going to have to go into the plot in a bit of detail here because it's uh, Amicus Portmento, it's five stories with a linking story. Uh, it's late one night at a London station and the train is bound is, is bound for distant parts. The guard blows his whistle and uh, five people pile into, the, into a compartment and sit down together. Uh, just as it's about to, the train's about to pull off, a sixth person enters who introduces himself as Dr. Shrek, played by Peter Cushing. He pulls, uh, as the uh, train pulls out, they start a conversation, and Dr. Shrek pulls out a deck of tarot cards. And then he offers to tell the future of his travelling companions, and they accept his offer. Idiots. First up, you have an arch- the, the first one is, a, is an architect played by Neil McCallum. Uh, best known for his TV sh- uh, shows in the UK, UFO, The Saint Department S. And he did the uh, some of the voices for the Thunderbird TV series. Um, uh, he's hired by a wealthy widow to redevelop her house. And whilst doing so, he's down in the cellar. He knocks down a false wall to discover the coffin of a dead aristocrat, who it turns out to be a werewolf, who... Um, Apparently was slighted by the architect's ancestors, and uh, when the werewolf discovers that one of the ancestors of the, of the people that dissed him is uh, doing his house out, decides he's going to become a werewolf and seek revenge. And then uh, the second story is where it gets a bit silly. A rich, wealthy businessman played by Alan Fluff Freeman. What? Yep, the legendary British radio DJ. Oh, shit fire. I had no idea he was in there. Yeah, Pop Pickers, it's Alan the Fluff Freeman. He comes home for, from his um, from a holiday with his wife and kids and uh, goes out to his beloved garden to find a strange plant growing there. Uh, he tries to get rid of it, but the plant fights back and bites him. Um, calls in some local scientists who don't discover that he's got this rare vine growing in his garden, but it's also... Sentient, intelligent, and homicidal. And basically, it wants to eat Alan Freeman and his family for dinner. Bom, bom, bom. Then you get the third story, enter, which is uh, a jazz trumpeter played by Roy Castle, mm-hmm. who um, only did a couple of movies. He did one of the carry-ons, Carry On the Kyber, I think he did. He was in the Doctor did. Who film as well. And he did the Doctor Who films. And um, it's only known for... Uh, Kids TV presenter in British TV and as a jazz musician. Sure. Well, he plays a jazz trumpeter, because in real life he was a jazz trumpeter, uh, who's who's on a cruise ship touring the West Indies. And whilst on some obscure West Indian island, uh, he's in his hotel room after having done his set, and he hears the voodoo rhythms echoing across the jungle. So he goes out and witnesses a voodoo ritual and makes note of the, of the chants and the voodoo rhythms, and then goes back to London and writes a piece of music for his band using these voodoo rhythms that are used to summon the dark forces of voodoo with dire consequences. Oh, dear. Um, interesting, the Tubby Haynes Quartet plays plays jazz group in that one. Okay. Yeah, which if you're into your British jazz revivalism, Tubby Haynes, one of the masters. Anyway, then next it's the turn of an art critic uh, played by Christopher Lee, who... Um, Likes to, who, who likes to diss artists with his famous wit. That's his trademark. He's a 
going back to what we talked about like the last episode with um, Theatre of Blood critics and that kind of thing yeah. and uh, one one young artist who uh, he's been quite critical to played by Michael Goth gets his revenge by humiliating him in public and involves getting a monkey to do a painting and getting the Christopher Lee to start waxing on the lyrical about it and then introducing the artist um, this pisses off the critic and the fight breaks out artists kind of sets forth a series of events in which case the artist loses his right hand and then the uh, which he paints with oh, okay. and then the hand decides it's going to go out and re- oh, revenge itself oh it's a uh, dismembered hand yeah revenge type tracking uh, down the, one of those yeah one of those <laughs> needless to say the last person in the carriage who is an American doctor played by Donald Sutherland is uh, kind of very reluctant at this point to hear his fate but the uh, Dr. Shrek in, uh, in, you know, insists and basically uh, he, his future is foretold that he's going to go back to the States with his wife that he's just married a young French woman only to find out she's a ravenous vampire and terror strikes um, then there's a wrap up which will if I give it will uh, will uh, spoil the film for anyone that wants to watch it, but it involves how these guys can cheat their fates. Ah. It's a kind of twisted kind of. Was it worth it? Yeah. yeah um, it started out as a TV series uh, in the 1940s, but never got made. And then um, when the uh, then new, fairly new Amicus Studios were looking around for. Um, kind of ideas because they had the idea of doing these portmento films where you kind of have like interlinked short stories it became amicus's trademark right through the early 80s so is this like a forerunner of what we now call an anthology yeah movie sort of thing yeah they, well they called them the am like they called the, the amicus portmentos mm. um uh they found they got hold of the script and decided to make it so with the cast that includes uh peter cushing neil mccallum adam freeman roy castle uh, Christopher Lee, Donald Sutherland, uh, with a few other interesting sport actors. How does it actors. compare in terms of the look and its budget to Hammer films? <coughs> Obviously, there is the they're on a par. The Amicus the films are on a par. connection there, but yeah, uh, they're on a par. You know, um, it's like maybe they're not as lavishly done with as the attention that gothic detail that yeah. the Hammer films have, but as the but the format, but the Amicus sorry as the Hammer films had. But the Amicus ones, they've got their own kind of... They tend to be set in modern day to sort of like, rather than have to worry about gothic castles and costumes. To save <laughs> sure, money. Yeah. But, you know, they went on to do like Towers from the Crypt, Monster Club. Oh, they did about 15, 20 of these films. The Uncanny, which is about cats and that kind of thing. So it's uh, quite an interesting kind of classic movie got its very funny moments. It's got its quite kind of... From 1965, it's got some quite good kind of shock moments. But so uh, I've not seen this, but it, I, I do quite fancy watching it. Yeah, I'd recommend it to anyone. Dr. Terror's House of Horus, Amicus Movies, 1965. Superb. Right. No trailer for this next one, because... Um, I, it would be completely pointless even if there was a trailer. It's a plinky piano music. It's a plinky piano. Um, I'm going to talk about a classic uh, silent film 
Uh, it's The General from 1926, directed by Clyde Buckman and Buster Keaton. Uh, starring, of course, the man himself. Um, there is a whole cast. Um, I think, in fact, even Buster Keaton's father is in it at one yeah. point. You you can't really talk about a Buster Keaton film and talk about anybody else. Um, but I'll, I'll go a little bit about the plot. Uh, basic plot is set in Civil War era um, America. Uh, when Union spies steal an engineer's beloved locomotive and inadvertently kidnap his girl, he pursues both single-handedly and straight through enemy lines. Um, this is based on the real-life great locomotive chase of 1862. This uh, silent classic is a whole string of amazing Keaton set pieces. It centres around Keaton's character's single-handed chase to retrieve his own stolen locomotive right back through into enemy lines and then a return chase as he tries to get back to safety. Um, at either end um, and interspersed in between are seminal moments of sort of more traditional classic slapstick comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the chases that kind of get the attention. Um, he, Keaton starts off on foot for switching to one of those like hand-powered rail things that crashes into a, a river at one point. And before finally commandeering... Trolley. Is that what they're called? What were they called? Yeah. Gangers trolleys. A gangers trolley. Um, before finally commandeering a locomotive to give chase. Cue Keaton's ingenious use of the whole locomotive for comedic purposes. Um, every stunt is completely and potentially fatal um, yet they're brilliantly executed in the name of uh, comedy. And those are the days when people did their own stunts. Uh, most definitely. Um, but even the, the filler between the set pieces are literally classic moments, and Keaton seems to utilise every moment, either falling over or somehow manipulating the scene to invoke humour. Um, it's a total masterclass. That's all the notes I wrote down for yeah. it. Um, I'd never seen... I for. It sounds atrocious, but other than bits and pieces of uh, Buster Keaton, I'd never sat down and watched a whole film. And I was struggling for a film about trains, because I'm not a massive train aficionado. Um, I was looking at a few more contemporary ones, and then I come across this one, um, which I think was recommended on... I, I think I googled films with trains in them. <laughs> and quite a lot near the top of these lists, The General came out. Um, and it, I, I must admit, although the I, I, I did watch it from start to finish, and I think I may have even seen the... Um, I think the, the version I saw is a later edit with a more contemporary music playlist. Mm. So it's not the plinky, plinky piano. It's a bit more orchestrated. Well, a lot of those did actually have all proper orchestral scores written for them. Yeah, I know there are several different soundtracks for it. So <coughs> they, I think they added some novelty sound effects to the version that I saw as mm. well, which kind of sort of didn't quite do it justice but um uh, i am absolutely uh, amazed and gobsmacked by buster keaton i've since looked looked up his career and found out how he got started in the family vaudeville act and um the the guy is incredible he learnt how to fall over safely so you don't get injured from doing ridiculous things um uh it, it's just unbelievable stuff and when you see it on the screen, it's black and white without sound and everything. It looks comedic, but then you sit there and think about just how dangerous mm. some of the stuff that he's doing. That, funnily enough, the most bizarre scene in it is towards the end. There is a scene where he's crossing a road, and there are horses and carts and carriages flying either side of him. 
and it must be a matter of centimetres before one mm. of them flattening him. And, I mean, they're travelling at a hell of a speed, and he's just leaping out of the way. And you think, you know, they've shot all the stuff with the big locomotives, all the big scenes that, you know, people mm. remember. This throwaway scene at the end, he could have died like seven or eight times. Yeah. Um, but one of the other things I learned about his character is, um, I, I, I read a sort of a short biography Apparently he found from doing the vaudeville, if you fall over, and it, oh, even though it's hilarious, if you laugh, the audience laughs less. Whereas if you keep a straight, deadpan face, mm. it's immediately funnier, because you also feel a bit sorry for him. Mm. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, incredible. You've seen, you must have oh, I've seen, seen it, yeah. The, what um, do you think you of the joke? Um, yeah, well, a couple of bits of uh, trivia for you. The two engines that I use are the actual engines from the original... He is a train buff. Oh, yeah. Now, the two engines they use are the two engines actually used in the original incident the film's based on. Okay. They both got preserved. And um, and I think Keaton on the film company actually had them restored back to working order. Okay. And um, like I said, it is kind of one of these iconic films. It's... It is an iconic film, but to my horror, I found that at the time it was critically panned by everyone. Mm. Um, it was a commercial failure, and it certainly, um, while it didn't kill his career, um, Keaton himself lost a lot of the creative control over his films because it was considered to be a failure. I, I think he always believed it was his, you know, one of his best films, mm. and he was proved right in the long term. I reckon purely this is because um, the protagonist he plays. I mean, it's quite historically accurate. Mm. Um, the protagonist he plays is from the South, who obviously lost the uh, lost the war. Um, yet he's playing a hero from the losing side, and I think that counted against it. I think he's gone for historical accuracy. I think nowadays they'd swip it, they'd flip it over, and it would be the uh, you know it, it would be the 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 North that to do all the acts of valor, and mm. you know they would probably take liberties with that just to to make it more marketable. That I reckon is probably the sole reason that I think it got. I think it probably got considered maybe not unpatriotic, but uh, it probably was not in the states. But yeah, yeah but um, it's interesting the fact that you know it's kind of you read kind of anything from people like Dr. Graham Garden that he said that it was Buster Keaton and the general in specifically yeah. that inspired a lot of the slapstick that they did. Jackie Chan turned I around see a and lot said of that he Jackie worshipped Chan in the altar of. Buster Keaton, you know, yeah. and even at the time, some of his, some of uh, Keaton's contemporaries, like Harold Lloyd, who's my favourite of those. Oh, Harold Lloyd is another fantastic. Um, he turned around and said, even he was on record as saying that the General is a masterwork. Um, I I was absolutely gobsmacked watching it, just some of the stuff they tried to do and the 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 way they made use of the the trains and the props mm. and even when there was nothing to be it, just him falling over. You know, yeah, just trying to, um, especially he's trying to impress the girl. Whenever he tries to impress the girl, without fail, he trips over something, <laughs> but then tries to recover really quickly to cover, <laughs> to cover it up. Um, I thought it was fantastic. So, and like uh, I said, no stuntmen as well. That was Keaton and the, and the cast doing those stunts. So. I, the guy must have been completely fearless or totally crazy. I don't know. I mean, uh, blind did you know he, he broke his neck at one point? And didn't yeah. really know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how it's possible. It must have, obviously, in terms of breaking your neck, it can't have been 
they were majorly seriously. Mm. He was either fractured some kind of bone. Or I, I, I don't know whether a later X-ray or a doctor said it appears at some point <laughs> you have broken your neck. Yes, yeah. Um, um, and of course, Bert Troutman. Bert Troutman is inspired by that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> It is possible, <laughs> but um, I think the story I've heard is that um, it was told a long time after the event where mm. a doctor says, oh, you, you've broken your neck. Uh, well, that was that sort of couple of years I had that really bad pain. <laughs> yeah, I've heard about that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's just unbelievable. But uh, the general, 1926, um, certainly uh, the, the best silent film I think I've ever seen. Um, I think we'll go My Choice for the Train and Buster Keaton... I'm going to be watching a lot more of his stuff over the coming uh, weeks and months. Uh, the General, 1926. So now we reach automobiles. Motor cars. Brum brums. Brum brums. What have you got? Um, I know we haven't got a trailer for this one, but it's not all that good, but are you going to play it anyway? I think we'll give it a go. Because it's basically it's a clip from the film for the DVD release, so give it a spin. Having some difficulty, old man? Where have you been? We didn't pass you. We've just been enjoying a delicious and most leisurely lunch. You've changed. Oh, and you've had a picnic. Oh. Why couldn't we have had a picnic? I love picnics. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Do you think that old Crocs packed it in for good? Well, don't worry about it. Are you sure I can't give you a hand, old boy? Don't you think Wendy ought to come with us? I should hate it to miss the parade. <laughs> if you take my advice, old boy, the next time that engine dies, you'll take it out and bury it. <laughs> what was that? Hurry, let's go. Do you think something awful's happened? Could be. <coughs> oh. oh, Susie. Having some difficulty, old man? Ah. Maybe we should take Roslyn with us. You know, I should hate her to miss the parade. <laughs> if you take my advice, the next time that engine dies... <laughs> <laughs> Did you see his expression? Oh, <laughs> yep, that was a little clip from Genevieve, classic British comedy from way back in 1953. We've got really retro this week, haven't we? Um, I think I've got the oldest one in 1926. Yeah. Um, what's your oldest one? Is this is this it? Yeah, this is my oldest so far. Okay. Yeah. I know nothing about this film. Oh, right. Okay. Um, director is Harry Cornelius. Um, only did, he died young. He only did five films, uh, which this is one of them. Uh, his most other famous film is Passport Pimlico, the classic healing comedy. You seen that one? Uh, I've heard of it. I yeah. Not seen um, it. It's about this area of London that declares independence from the rest of England, and Margaret Rutherford's in it. No, I've definitely not. I... I have heard of it, but I'm, no, yeah. I've definitely not seen it. But, um, yeah, classic comedy film. And he, uh, it's not exactly an Ealing comedy, but it's in the same vein as the classic Ealing comedies from the 50s. 
Um, basically, the plot is as follows. There's a couple of vintage car enthusiasts, played by uh, John Gregson and um, Kenneth Moore, that are entered in the 1953 London to Brighton car rally, which is basically... Uh, Let's give some background for those of the people that don't know. Um, back in 1890-something, uh, there was a rule before then that all, auto car, all cars and steam carriages had to have a bloke doing walking pace with a man with a red flag in front. Um, the government changed the law. They celebrate. All these people jumped in their cars and drove from London to Brighton. Um, well, not as a race, just as a kind of run. You'd see what their cars could do at high speeds and walking pace. And it's developed into a sort of icon of British culture where classic car enthusiasts and vintage cars run all these cars from 1904 and that between London and Brighton every September. But anyway, they've entered the run and uh, John Gregson's going to take his uh, wife who um, is just married, played by Diana Sheridan um, and uh, Kenneth Moore's going to take his new girlfriend who's a model played by Kay Kendall. Um, they jump in the cars and they basically set off to Brighton. Um, Moore has a great run, makes great time, makes it in time in his uh, 1904 Spiker. However, John Gregson in his 1904 Darak uh, has breakdowns, which leads to a row with the wife, which leads <laughs> to another breakdown, which leads to a steering failure. And when they arrive at Brighton late, they realise that there's been a mix-up with the booking. And instead of being in the nice posh uh, hotel on Brighton Seafront with more on the rest of the vintage car drivers. They can only get into a uh, really run-down, falling-to-piece, rat-infested B&B run by <laughs> Joyce Grenfell, the classic uh, British actor from the Carry On films and the Trinians movies and stand-up comedian and all this sort of thing. Love Joyce Grenfell. Joyce Grenfell fan? Um, did she do those sketches where she's the teacher? Yeah, George, don't do that. I asked them. Yeah, yeah I, I remember George. Yeah. Anyway, um, things go from bad bad to worse, and they go to the annual car, uh, RAC Veteran Car Club Gala dinner, uh, where they find out that John Gregg's new wife used to go out with Kenneth Moore. Ooh. Um, who, by this point, you've got the impression that Kenneth Moore's character's a bit of a lad and only takes women to Brighton for one thing. Oh, dear. The famous Dirty Weekend. More and more alcohol's drunk. Arguments start to break out, and to cut a long story short, um, Gregson accuses Moore of shagging his wife. He challenges his wife, did she shag Kenneth Moore? And she doesn't exactly say no. So these are a bigger row, and they basically decide they're going to have a race back to London to settle it like men in these 1904 cars. And then the rest of the film is the race back to London. I'm not going to give it away because it's got some lovely set pieces and some little jokes and some lovely bit of character acting. One of the quintessential British movies in the 1950s in the comedy vein. Uh, so, superb cast. John Gregson, classic British actor, uh, did both. He seemed to do mainly kind of comedies and war movies. Comedies he did with a Titfield Thunderbolt, Whiskey Galore, and a few of the other hammers. Whilst in the war film, he was in The Longest Day, Angels 1-5, Battle of the River Plate. We've already mentioned Kenneth Moore, who was in The Battle of Britain, who we talked about earlier. But also he did Reach for the Sky, Doctor in the House, Seek the Bismarck, The Admirable Crichton. Again, uh, Night to Remember, one was about the Titanic, he did that one. Uh, he's sort of one of these actors that he was very, very versatile as Kenneth Moore, he could do all sorts. 
And then, as I said, you've got Dinah Sheridan, who was uh, other most famous films, plays the mother in The Railway Children. Ah. Uh, also did a lot of TV, including she was one of Doctor Who's assistants around about the Patrick Troughton period. And then Kay Kendall um, was, uh, at the time, married to Rex Harrison, the guy that did all those musicals like uh, My Fair Lady and Doctor Doolittle. Again, hugely kind of uh, very touching comedy. There's, But there's a kind of, for a 1950s British comedy, there's a lot of adult themes that are running through it. Infidelity and wife-swapping and... I've, I wouldn't say I struggle to watch yeah. these. I think the only comedies I think I've seen, well, probably the only one, is that um, I've seen Kind Hearts and Coronets, which is more of a, sort of a bit of a black comedy, really. Yeah, that's the one with Alec Guinness Alec playing. Guinness playing all those parts. Um, but I think, is this more of a traditional British comedy rather than a... Uh, it's hard to pin down these, aren't Yeah, they? because they're, it's... They're it's very much of, those... of the era. Yeah. Um, Watch it with the kids, and the kids will go, oh, well, the funny car's breaking down, and but the adults will then get the kind of interplay with the, did you shag my wife on the 1949 run and all this sort of thing, you know? Do you think it still speaks to modern audience? Or? Well, I watched it um, not, uh, about two or three nights ago, okay. um, just to sort of refresh my memory, and um, I still thoroughly enjoyed it. I still, it still had me laughing out loud in places. You know, um, yeah, there's no fart gags, there's no bad <laughs> language, there's no kind of full frontal nudity. But, you know, if it's, if I believe, honestly believe if something's funny, it remains funny. Nice. Hence the reason why I still get a laugh out of things like Norman Wisdom and Will Hay movies. Okay. You know, and uh, Laurel and Hardy, Buster Keaton, etc. So it's got a kind of timeless element, but it also it's kind of, Got quite a kind of touching, looking back at it, quite, okay, I wasn't even born in 1953, but I could imagine older people as well would find it very touching and nostalgic. And also as a window from our time back to theirs. Sure. It's an interesting little concept, you know? And a little side point, the two cars, the 1904 Spiker and You are such a fucking nerd. You know that. They both still exist, and they're on display in the Loman Motor Museum in Holland. And also the film was the most popular British film of 1953 and uh, was recently voted in the in a Times poll as one of the top ten British comedies of all time. Okay. So, Genevieve, 1953. Classic, classic British comedy. Cool. Nice one, dude. <laughs> I can't believe you are such a fucking nerd about these. This is story accuracy, isn't it? Right. It's the last one. Uh, last, well, so the last one of the theme selection this uh, yep. this episode. Name, Kowalski. Occupation, driver. Transporting a supercharged Dodge Challenger from Denver to San Francisco. Background, Medal of Honor in Vietnam. Former stock and bike racer. Former cop, dishonorably discharged. Now he uses speed to get himself up. To get himself gone. Everybody's after Kowalski. Because you think we're queers. For one reason or another. Is there something I can do for you? Well, like what? Like anything you want. Everybody wants a piece of his hide. Maybe kill somebody. Maybe stole that big dude of his. Maybe both. Look at that son of a... They want to get him. 
and put him away. But they'll have to catch him first. Good morning, folks. This is yours truly, Super Duper Soul. The Wrecked Live Transmit from KOW. With the round, round, boom, boom, wake up music. Being chased by the blue, blue meanies on wheels. The vicious traffic squad cars are after our known driver. The super driver of the Golden West. The police numbers are getting closer, closer, closer to our soul hero in his soul mobile. They're gonna kill him, smash him, rape the last American hero. It's the maximum trip at maximum speed. Vanishing point. It's Vanishing Point from 1971. Uh, um, I will talk a little bit. Now I can film. Sorry, carry on. Great movie. Very good. Yeah. Um, I'm going to sound much. Well, I, I'm getting a bit tired of saying this. I, I probably come across as a complete ignorant. <laughs> complete ignoramus. Um, ignoramus on the nerve. Ignoramus. Live on the Crash and Burn movie podcast. I uh, I had never heard of this. Uh, never heard of this film. I stumbled upon this film. You know, we mentioned um, revenge films last week. Eyebrows are raised, by the way. Eyebrows are raised already. We haven't yeah. even got to these so bad. It's great. Um, I watched uh, Death Proof. Yeah. And it was a contender to get into the revenge films in the last episode, and it didn't quite make it. But the last segment of Death Proof, um, they basically use the car or a car similar to the one used in this film, this vanishing point. Um, I did know what sort of car it was, but I can't remember. It is a 1970 Dodge Challenger. Dodge Challenger, that's right. A white 1970 Dodge Challenger. A beautiful white 1970s Dodge Challenger. So when we came up with this thing, I was was struggling. I mean, I I was mostly fretting over trains because trains are really not my thing. And I saw the general, fantastic. Oh, bollocks, what am I going to do for cars? And I got some absolutely terrible suggestion. One fucker at work did suggest one of the Herbie films. Oh, no. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> so, I thought, suddenly... Although, having said that, the one they did with Lindsay Lohan is a contender for so bad, it's great. Maybe we'll come to that, but... Not in this episode. Um, I thought, they referenced a, a, a film in Death Proof. What was it? It was Vanishing Point, and lo and behold, I find it appears to be one of the uh, most highly rated, influential road movies, uh, road movies of the uh, of, well, of all time, but specifically of this period in the early seventies. Yeah. So I thought classic period for road movies that year. That kind of saved my bacon a bit, really. I am going to uh, watch and review Vanishing Point, which I did. Mm-hmm. So Vanishing Point, nineteen seventy one. Directed by Richard C. And I'll try and pronounce his name. I think it's Sarafian. Does that sound right to you? Richard C. Sarafian? I can't remember. Sounds okay. Sounds good. That um, is a complaint, so... To, to me, unfortunately. Um, 
not noted for many other films. Looking at his credits, Solar Crisis, which gets an incredibly low, it's a sci-fi, gets an mm. incredibly low rating, and Gangster Wars, um, which gets a slightly better rating. There's, I think he did a whole series and um, a you know, TV series about gangsters, and then this feature called Gangster Wars. But don't really uh, you know, trouble the top ten lists of the good and the great of film. Stars Barry Newman, uh, Clevon Little, and Dean Jagger. Um, I've got very few notes about this because there isn't a huge, huge amount of sort of dialogue in it, traditional no. dialogue. Um, a lot of it is basically the, you know, shots of the car and the very sort of sometimes bleak but always quite striking uh, landscape. Well, that's one of the tricks of a good road movie is the... Um, well, this isn't me talking. I got this off Rich Hall. The documentary on road movies on BBC Four a couple okay. of months ago, but uh, basically the road mm-hmm. movie, the scenery should do the talking. The scenery does indeed do. And like, a lot that's holds true for all the classics like uh, Easy Rider, um, Zabrinsky Point, um, well, Two Lane Blacktop, all of those. But anyway, carry on. Yeah. Sure, I like a road movie. Uh, a good road movie, always good. Barry Newman plays Kowalski. Ironically, that was the surname of um, Clint Eastwood's character we spoke about in uh, Gran Torino last uh, last episode. We're full of Kowalskis. There we are. Yeah. He plays Kowalski, the brooding anti-hero. I think there's a Kowalski in Back to Britain, the sequence with the Polish pilot. Is he called Shut Kowalski? Shut up, Kowalski. Well? Oh, well, it wouldn't yeah. surprise me. It's a Polish name, isn't it? Yeah. Kowalski. Probably Polish equivalent to Smith. Absolutely. Any Poles that are listening, please let us know. What does Kowalski mean? Absolutely. Yeah. There we go. Uh, yeah. Barry Newman plays Kowalski, <laughs> the brooding anti-hero of this movie. He is a disillusioned ex-soldier, ex-cop, former racing driver, who's also grieving the loss of his hippie alternative lifestyle living girlfriend, who dies in some bizarre surfing accident. It's uh, it's quite strange. Um, he is working as a car delivery driver, taking high-power muscle cars from state to state, and it's while making one of these deliveries in this instance, the iconic white 1970s Dodge Challenger we um, mentioned earlier. He's taking it from Colorado to California. He loads up on speed and becomes hell-bent on making the delivery in a completely ridiculously short time scale. This obviously uh, requires him to... Has comp- he got to make the delivery in a time scale, or is it a bet? I can't no, 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 he makes a bet. He makes a bet. It's... He drives the timescale. It's hmm. a, a legal delivery, um, but he shortens the timescale. He decides the factor. Um, right. which, yeah, I haven't seen the film for a couple of years. So. I'll come to that in a minute. Yeah. It's it's striking, and you may be able to shed a lot more hmm. light on this, because uh, I think it's probably a film you know a lot more about than I do. Well, I've seen I, it for ages. Yeah, I haven't seen on, it yeah. for ages. I've only seen it once, and I have, I have lots. Of, I have more questions about it, really. Okay, well, we'll go answers. through and we'll do, we'll do a question. It's, uh, like. it's a weird one. Um, yeah, so he, um, he's basically speeding off his face, trying to make this delivery in a self-imposed but ridiculous timescale. Um, this obviously requires him to completely disregard any motoring laws and concept of road safety. And it isn't long before he incurs the wrath of the local police in all of the states he passes through. He goes, he starts off in Colorado, goes through mm. Nevada, then gets into California, where it where it ends. Um, oh, hang on, well, we'll come back to that afterwards. Cause I don't think he, I don't think he actually goes to California, does he? No, he does get to California. Does he? He crosses the border. Yes. Ah, oh, right. Ah, see. I carry on. Yeah. There we go. Um, 
His exploits are also telegraphed over the radio airwaves by the counterpoint character in the film, the blind DJ Super Soul, who's played by Little. Um, again, that's all I've written down for this because um, it's a strange one. I'm, I've seen quite a lot of films from this era, hmm. um, and we we spoke about um, uh, in the you know the I think it's specifically in the the. The, the the craziness people cracking up episode that we did about um, subsections of society that um, become disillusioned or disenfranchised. Yeah. Uh, so I I don't know whether this is aimed at the fact that he's got so he's 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 an ex so many things like he was an ex soldier who gets injured in Vietnam and then gets discharged from the army. He's a cop, but he's a good cop, and he gets kicked out because he grasses up a bad cop and gets a dishonourable discharge. Um, he crashes as a racing driver, I think has a bad injury and can't carry that on. Uh, so his life is... He just never fits in anywhere. It's very strange. He is completely outside of what's going on. He's a likeable character, and, you know... But he is also a loner, and anything that he has that is good, it's only a matter of time before somehow it gets wrestled away from him. Yeah. So in a way, he's quite a tragic figure. But again, that's another standard road movie thing, isn't it? The loner. Yeah. Because you've got the Hopper and Fonda characters in Easy Rider. Yeah. They went looking for America and found only whatever it was, you know? And uh, you can say the same for Two Lane Blacktop again, and... uh, um, yeah, even up to things like Thelma and Louise, it's the rebels and the renegades that end up as the main protagonists in these rogue movies. I mean, it's a very strange one. He sets off, like I said, he, he, he at the start of the film, he turns up, delivers the car that he's driving, stops for a few minutes, chats to the mechanic there, and he says, oh, I want to do the next job, and just takes the car and off he goes. Um he doesn't stop to sleep, to rest, to eat, or do anything. He loads up on speed with his dealer, and that's who he makes the, the kind of bet with. And it's a ridiculous bet then. And you you don't know at the start of the film, but you've got this feeling that, uh, you know, he's he's going on this almost fatalistic head charge. It's like a last horror. He's got to push the limits as far as he can go. Um, and he just exists to drive. On the Internet Movie Database, there is a huge, huge holding about what this film is actually about. And mm. you get people who are quite sort of scholarly talking about existentialism and all sorts. Mm. There are people who are turning around saying, look, I, I grew up in this generation. It's bollocks. It's purely, it's nothing, nothing about, you know, he's got this single-minded desire to achieve this goal, mm. even though he knows potentially he has almost no chance of achieving it. It's just to do something, and they, he's not going to stop, and no one is going to make him stop. Mm. Um, it's very hard to say once you've watched it, to say that it's about any one thing. It seems yeah. to be all of these things. I mean, like I said, you know, to me, I go along the idea, again, I'm quoting Rich Old here, is that the road movie is an analogy of the American dream. At the time when all the classic road movies came out in the 60s and 70s, they were pushing the car as freedom. This was before the double nickel speed limit and all this sort of thing, yeah? You know, all the characters that go on these road movies are looking for something. They're looking for America. And the American landscape provides the backdrop. But the American, but they, they rarely, if ever, find the American dream. They just find the rotten underbelly of it. That's my personal take on the whole concept of the road movie, the American road movie, anyway. 
It's strange for the Kowalski character. I don't even think he's looking for the American dream. No, I think but he's not, long since given yeah, up. No, but it's, it. the, it's the analogy of someone that, with vanishing point, it's the analogy of someone that the American dream spat out. Very similar kind of idea to the um, Michael oh, Douglas character in falling down. Falling down yeah. It's kind of, you know, he's the kind of the bottom. I said he is a sui- And again, I also believe that the Kowalski character in, in vanishing point is on a suicide charge. He knows that he's not going to make it. Now I always thought that they that it ended on the bot on the Californian state line. He just about he he crosses the uh, uh, he does Spider cross alert. the uh, he does cross the California border. Hmm. So the uh, the the end of the film takes place within California. He pulls a bit of a ruse to get in with, uh, but I can't really talk about that because yeah. that will give away quite a, a proportion of the film. But he does get into California. Right, OK. Um, it's shortly after he gets into California. That the big shattering climax happens. Um, but, I mean, the film takes in... Although they're very similar landscapes, obviously, mm. the, you've got the... Uh, you, you've got the kind of sort of the wilderness of... Um, you sort of the outskirts of Nevada. Yeah, Nevada And then it goes into the, the Nevada, which is very desert-orientated. Um California, you don't notice a huge difference between those. Is that got the whole sequence in it where he goes off the hippie commune? Or I'm not thinking. Uh, they're the religious commune. Religious they're, commune. Uh, yeah, they're right, faith yes. healers, um, and they they want him out of there. Although they don't yeah. say to him, they make it perfectly clear they don't want him either. Mm. So everywhere he goes, um, he meets hippies later, and they actually ask him to stay. That's right. Yeah. He either doesn't feel he belongs yeah. or feels he can't stay. But there again, it's rejected. kind of don't you think the whole religious commune again? We're talking about someone that been kicked out of the army, it's kicked out of the police, the American institutions. The church is another huge American institution. That seems he's alienated be, from that. So yeah. when he meets the hippies later on, because he's beginning to come back to me now, I said I haven't seen this film for a good few years. But you know the the alternative lifestyle that he could possibly fit into, he feels so alienated that he can't even see himself fitting into that. Well, I mean, he's an ex-cop, isn't it? It's, yeah. Uh, it it's hinted at that. Uh, was it the the girlfriend who who dies at one point sparks up a joint and says, "I hope you're not going to like arrest me for this." <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. almost, uh, you know, she's almost uh, the antithesis of what he stands for, and he's trying to go with it. But no sooner does he accept it than she snuffs it. So, yeah, it's uh, it's bizarre. Um, it wasn't what I was expecting. I must admit, I, I I'm not um, a huge. Um, expert on these road movies of that era, mm. so it was kind of a bizarre introduction to. It. But uh, I really did enjoy it. As you said, the landscape does a lot of the talking for the characters. Everybody uh, talks about Cleveland Little character, the DJ, mm. who starts off as the DJ, but sometimes acts as the kind of moral conscience of the film. Sometimes. I don't know. He provides basically a running commentary of whatever's going on. He does provide a commentary. He also seems to be talking directly to the Kowalski character and hearing what he's saying. It's really Mm. quite cleverly done. You never know whether it's a voice in Kowalski's head or whether he's genuinely having this thing. Uh, And it it also, briefly, being that the Cleveland Little character is blind and is also black in a time when there is still quite a bit of racial tension, there is quite a... uh, an explosive scene in the middle where the uh, the white natives decide uh, that he's he's basically 
helping Kowalski's character out and giving him clues. So they go to take him down and get him off the airwaves and stuff. It's quite, it is quite provocative. Mm. Um, a lot of themes dealt with. Um, it's one of those you could probably talk about for a lot longer. <laughs> probably yeah. discuss more than you know the dialogue in the film itself. Uh, well, maybe if we do road movies on a future episode, one we can come back to. Quite possible. And maybe I'll have a go and we can go and do it again. Yeah. I'm sure you do a better job than oh, I Oh, no, no, no. But no. I, I did enjoy it. I'm glad I've seen it. Um, I think to appreciate it fully, um, it's very much of its time. I think if you if you were there at the time, you would probably understand a lot more of the themes that go on. Mm. I think I'm looking back. Um, not I, it's an American film. I'm looking back at a generation that I don't know a huge amount. Um, so probably I may never truly understand what it truly is about. But as a spectacle, it was uh, it was a really really good film. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Classic movie, I'd recommend it. Absolutely, that's Vanishing Point, nineteen seventy one. And there endeth the uh, theme selection for uh, for this episode. Uh, we might have to edit that down a bit because I think we ruffled on quite a bit. Yeah, it was but, interesting uh, stuff. Like. It was interesting. It's good. So we'll, you know, you will do the sponsors a bit this time. Absolutely, we're going to take a short break while you hear some possibly some adverts from nineteen fifties, possibly a few more promos from. Uh, well, let's say friendly rival podcasts who uh, absolutely <laughs> who hopefully will will reciprocate and bring us some more listeners and vice versa. Yeah, our seven listeners can go and listen to their podcast. I'm sure we'll have more than seven yeah. listeners this time. I'm absolutely and while we're doing that, we're going to start strangling ducks. Quack! Why are we strangling ducks? Why not? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ridiculous movies, completely ridiculous movies. Hi, I'm Brian, President and CEO of Movie Meltdown, that silly meandering show that gamers on about movies. And due to an overproduction of ridiculous movies in Hollywood, I am now overstocked with podcasts, and I'm passing the savings on to you. Kill time on the commute, distract yourself from the drone of your workaday job, drown out thoughts of your failing relationship, or just completely ignore your bratty children. Whatever your podcast listening needs, Movie Meltdown has it for you. So come on down to the iTunes store or look for us at MovieMeltdown.com. That's Route 2 on the Information Superhighway. And we're back, and it's time for the final section of the show. It is... So bad. It's great. Well done, you've got it right this time. Yeah. Finally, congratulations. It's not so bad it's good, or so bad it's classic, or so bad it's bad. It's anything else, it's so bad so it's, bad, great. it's great. Okay, I'm going to kick off, and we're going to start off with this little classic. to the outer universe a reality. Satellite space stations in operation for landing and refueling. Apparently we have some deadly neighbors in outer space. Captain, it's heading toward us. And now the story of the fantastic adventure that befalls mankind's most daring crew of space explorers. What a sound. Not even the hum of an insect. Is this a dead planet? Landing on an unknown planet, they are captured by long-limbed beauties. When they say, take me to your leader, and they take them to a creature like this, you know they're on planet Venus. And the queen of outer space is Jaja Gabor. The most talked about woman in the world knows what she wants on Venus, too. Then... 
We're the only men on the whole planet? Yes. Wow. You'll see the revolt that brings the planet under the domination of strangely masked females who hate and fear the male animal. Let me kill her now. You're not only a queen, you're a woman too. Let me see your face. The savage horrors of fearsome mutated beasts. <coughs> the war of the sexes. When voluptuous Venusians give battle to spacemen from Earth. The destructive might of incredible space rays that stop man from returning to Earth. Prepare for maximum acceleration. Queen of Outer Space from 1958, directed by Edward Burns, um, mainly no, best known for doing films uh, for the Three Stooges, both full length and shorts. Um, although he did do a couple of the early Elvis films and the horror sequel Return of the Fly in the 1950s. So uh, um, this is his great sci-fi epic plot is bear with me on this one because there's i'm going to, have to go through a fair bit of detail um you've got captain patterson who's america's top rocket jockey as he describes himself earlier in the film a rocket jockey yeah and uh, his crew that are on a routine mission to uh, ferry a scientist up to an orbiting space station they're pissed off about this because they wanted to be the, the uh, first team to make the martian high orbit but instead, they're ferrying this bloke up to the, the space station. Yeah, the reason why they're taking this scientist up is because they've discovered strange activity in space. And as they approach the space station, strange energy beams start firing all over the place, seemingly out of nowhere, and coming at them at random angles. Space station, first of all, takes a deflected hit and then is immediately destroyed by the second shot. Um, they start shooting at the speed their speeding rocket ship, and... Uh, the ship is damaged as they kind of accelerate to infeasibly high speeds. It breaks the speedometer, it goes bend to try and get away from these rays that are being fired at them. They've got a speedometer on the rocket. They've got a speedometer on, <laughs> awesome. on the rocket ship. Um, the crew pass out because of the high G-forces involved and will only wake up after the ship has crash-landed on a strange planet. Where did this planet come from? Come flat in a second. Ah, they set out to explore the planet and then suddenly realised they crash-landed on Venus. Okay. And they're most confused because they're saying, isn't Venus supposed to be this red-hot place with impenetrable atmosphere and acid rain? Mm -hmm. Instead, they're in this jungle. They start to explore to find out anything about the planet and see if they can find any kind of thing to get their rocket ship repaired. When uh, they decide to camp for the night in the jungle grove and out of the trees, jump a large number of 1950s uh, beauty queens armed with strange-looking ray guns that kind of arrest them and drag them off to their city. Sounds good to me. There they meet the masked evil queen Yolana, and they find out that they that she has banished all men from the planet, imprisoning them on a small nearby moon. Is there a small nearby moon to Venus? Venus hasn't got any satellites, has it? No, not officially, but it has in the film. Ah, right. hell, it's got... Um, 
It's got she, like, women in, in, in their underwear on it, I suppose. Yeah. Officially. She, I she finds them guilty of being men and sentences them <laughs> to death. She finds them guilty of being men? Yes. What kind of trial was that? It basically involves kind of these guys being held at gunpoint by these women in very short skirts with very long legs and high heels and those kind of 1950s pointy blouses Fantastic. that emphasise uh, breasts. Where she says you're men and you're guilty, therefore you must die. Worst that effect. Okay, she didn't actually check just to get that sure. I mean, no, like, physically. Well, they probably got the beard, so yeah. We Is it? Well, beard. some of them are bearded. Yeah, well, some of them beards are sort of stubble. You know, the square jawed hero with the stubble. Just as long as they've been thorough and they definitely were all men. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, they're, they're they're locked up in the cells to wait their event, inevitable fate, where they're rescued by a good woman called Talila, played by Zaza Gabor. And uh, she rescues them and takes them back to their her kind of hides them in a flat type apartment type place in this space city on Venus. <laughs> and uh, she tells them the story that, that all men are banished from the planet. They're hidden on this moon. Um, but they're kept alive on the moon because women can't invent technology for themselves. Oh, I see. So they enslave the men on this moon and make them invent weapons of mass destruction for them. Because that's, that's what, what they, men are good for. That's what they do. Okay. Right. And she then confesses that her and most of the women on the planet are missing the manliness of men and the love of a man, because it's what all women really desire deep down. <laughs> they then hatch up a way of escape that involves Captain Patterson seducing the Queen of Outer Space. Oh, with the dodgy mask? Yeah. Okay. Uh, he goes to see her. Uh, to try and explain to her that all women need the love of a man. Isn't uh, she pissy that... He's escaped and then... I don't quite, quite go into that. Really? Well, he just appears. Well, he yeah, just he, knock on well, the door, does he? Well, he, I think he gets himself arrested again, apparently, if I remember rightly. I only watched it the other night. And, but anyway, <laughs> I'm still too busy laughing at the fact that uh, that women, all women need men. You know, it's the inner feminist in me. He found that highly hilarious. Um, I, carry on. I have a few questions. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he takes off her mask because he wants to see what her true beauty is. To find out her true beauty has been horribly disfigured by radiation burns. Basically, it looks like she's been hit in the face with a red custard pie. Was it men responsible? Men were responsible. Men were damn men men. Men. <laughs> Apparently, on Venus, before they banished the men, the, the planet was plagued by terrible wars, and a man caught fire some radiation weapon that burnt off her face off. Therefore, she hates all men. And uh, on top of that, the men that she's got imprisoned on the moon have developed this great big death ray, which she found out was shooting at them in the first place <laughs> and damaged their spaceship. And uh, because war is, because Earth is, is run by men, is warlike, she's going to blow up Earth. Because it's a patriarchal society, not a matriarchal society. They've got men on Earth, so she's going to blow it to tiny pieces. Cue revolution and a battle of the sexes as uh, these stranded spaceship crew and Zazar Gabor lead the woman in a uh, civil war to uh, overthrow the evil queen and win the right for women to be loved and served by men again. Or to ser- or the right to serve men again. I see. Um, yeah. That's basically the plot. Can I ask a question? You can ask a question. When they banished all the men from Venus to whatever moon there, how did the women expect to um, 
reproduce, reproduce them. They don't go into that. Do they not? Do they not think that one through? Or are they well, just women that, who obviously don't know about these? Or is that? Or it's so kind of... Um, you could take it as red, or because it's America in the 1950s, they don't talk about such nastiness. Oh, of course not. Although they do let women run around with their legs out. And in huge pointy, pointy-breasted blouses. <laughs> um, <coughs> only three actors of note in the entire cast. I've already mentioned Zaza Gabor, who um, bit of a screen icon from the 1950s and 60s, wasn't she? Yeah. What on earth did she have anything to do with um, this film for? I don't know the money. I don't know because it's kind of in the middle. She did some. So, or maybe it was she was trying to revive her career because a lot of her classic films, like Three Ring Circus, were about five, six years before this. Okay. You know, so late went on to do a lot of TV work. So, um, the other two characters of note Eric Fleming, who plays the uh, commander Patterson, um, probably best known for playing alongside Clint Eastwood in the 60s cowboy show Rawhide, and David Wilcock, who's most notable for being the voice of the narrator in Wacky Races. Ah. <laughs> that Dick Dastardly slid it into reverse gear. <laughs> yep, that's him. The, the idea of the film was, first of all, the script was written back in the 1940s. Was it by a man? It was by a man. I it can't remember who wrote it, be, but really? it's by a man. Um, but basically, the, it was hawked around studios for 10 years before anyone got the bottle to make it. And then after it was made... It wasn't released for another year because they were a bit, oh, my God, what have we made? <laughs> it was accepted to be shot in the first place. I can't remember the film company that made it. But they turned around and said, this makes a good excuse for a cinematic beauty pageant. Hence the reason why all they're walking around, all the women are young, late teens, early 20s, very attractive, in very short skirts and low-cut pointy-breasted blouses. Horribly, terribly bad. If your average kind of militant-type sexist sat down to watch it, <laughs> she will probably be having heart attacks. I mean, looking back at it for modern days, kind of your average militant type feminist would probably have a heart attack and by screaming from the room. Although you said the sexist will probably love every minute of it, you know. <laughs> That's a reference to the comic Viz, by the way, those of you not in the UK. Yeah. I I think uh, even even your modern, even a modern person with slightly chauvinistic beliefs would probably be quite surprised mm. by uh, by this film. Yeah, um, I have seen this. This is uh, I've seen it a long time ago. I think we might have watched it around here at some point when we were sharing the flat. I, I tell you what, we I've got it on VHS. It was parodied for Amazon Women on the Moon, wasn't it? A lot mm. later, the, the, uh, this is the spaceships on the bits of string and yeah. special effects. But the, I think the original is far worse, but in a way far better. If you know now, I, mean. I forgot to write it down, but it was actually kind of loosely based on a 19, early 1950s British film. Okay. Um, which, again, is kind of women from outer space invading Earth top, think, destroying men. can't remember what it's called, though. It's a, a, one of the proto-hammers. A pretty brainless film. Kind of, it's got, it isn't exactly a laugh a minute, but there are some classic kind, of, especially every time a man walks in and after his women stop. <laughs> Falling at their feet <laughs> because they haven't had the love of love and a man to serve for. Oh, to be a so man on Venus. There we go. Yeah, but not with the evil Queen Yelana. No, trying to blow you up for being a man. No. Yeah, so that's Queens of Outer Space, nineteen fifty-eight. So bad is great. 
So bad it's interesting. So bad it's interesting. Yeah. Obviously, we, we've set the bar quite high for these, so I think this is the first episode we've had where we haven't absolutely found um, films that defy all logic. Certainly after Deathbed, The Bed That Eats, I'm... Well, I think we're going to be really pushed to go beyond that. Strangely enough, though, um, I've also got a bit of a sci-fi... Well, it starts off as a sci-fi. Um, I'll play the trailer. Magnificent. You've never seen anything till you've seen the sun through the rings of Saturn. Astronaut Stephen West was returning from outer space. But something terrible had happened. Remember now, his mind is so completely decomposed. We've got to find him. He's going to need human cells to live on. West had turned into the incredible melting man. And the more he kills, the longer he's going to live. <laughs> he seems to be getting stronger as he melts. The incredible melting man is the first new horror creature. Come prepared. It is The Incredible Melting Man from 1977, the year I was born, funny enough. Um, also, the year Star Wars came out. An interesting bit of contrast here, which I'll discuss later. <laughs> Director is a guy called William Sachs, who did uh, Galaxania and a film called Spooky House, fairly recently, which apparently starred Ben Kingsley. Um, only thing of any note that I could find were those two films. Both of which appear to be pretty awful. Eyebrows are raised already. Eyebrows are raised already. That uh, Ben Kingsley would have anything to do by a film that this director makes. Or yeah, uh, this stars Alex Rebar, um, who starred in The Devil Within Her, also known as Beyond the Door, which we spoke about off microphone because um, you reviewed uh, Beyond the Door um, Beyond Three, the Door Death, Death Train, Train. Death Train. Um, this is the first Beyond the Door one. Absolutely nothing to do with Beyond the Door 2. No, they're three. not. They're unrelated sort of stories, but with the kind of same crew made them. Yeah. Yeah. Also stars somebody called Bird Benning, uh, who starred in Beach Red and apparently had a part in Nightmare on Elm Street 5. Uh, I wouldn't know him from Adam, but uh, there we go. Yeah. With a title parodying B-movies and drive-in fodder from the 1950s, The Incredible Melting Man Sorry. sounded dated from the moment it arrived. Uh, released in a year dominated by the visual extravaganza that was Star Wars, this film was never going to get a look-in in the sci-fi stakes, but instead attempted to position itself more into the horror creature feature type film. Uh, basic plot is thus. Film starts with a space mission. Apparently it's a manned mission somewhere near Saturn. Suddenly the three-man crew are bombarded with radiation from a solar flare. And although we don't see what happens afterwards, somehow they're able to return to Earth. Uh, two of the crew die, but the survivor, Steve West, played by Rebar, um, has been beset with this terrible affliction. He started melting. Yeah. Eyebrows not raised yet? No, because I think I have seen it, but many, many years yeah. ago. Carry on. Apparently, starting to melt makes you very mentally unstable, makes you escape from hospital, and makes you go on a random killing spree. It does. It does. Believe it's me, I've melted enough. But, yeah, sure, yeah. Yeah. 
the main bulk of the film is set up as a race against time thriller to catch the incredible melting man before A, he kills more people and B, he melts. He melts. Um, at that point, I stopped writing notes. This film is shit from the very start. The um, the space mission you see, um, they obviously didn't have a huge budget for the sci-fi bit, so they've used what is quite blatantly footage from uh, lunar, um, you know, the, the actual mm. lunar landings and lunar... It's all lunar film footage. So they're nowhere near Saturn. You don't see Saturn or the rings of Saturn. Um, there's a solar flare... And one of the astronauts goes, hey, you haven't lived until you've seen a solar, a solar flare through one. the rings of Saturn, which you don't fucking see. <laughs> you see some footage of a solar flare, you see some footage of the moon, and then you see three astronauts pulling very scary faces with fake nosebleeds. And then they cut back to a hospital. So they don't say whether they recovered, how they flew the ship back all the way from Saturn, which is a long fucking way. Yeah. Uh, it's a long, long way for, um, you know, astronauts from the 1970s to even consider getting... Well, even the 1960s when they went to Saturn Absolutely. in uh, 2001, it's implied it took a month. Yeah. So they get back. Um, obviously, two of the crew have died. Um, this one guy, Steve Breber's character, Steve uh, West, has, has survived. And he's sort of all bandaged up in this hospital. This, uh, what you would expect to be a high-tech NASA, maybe military hospital, which is manned by one uh, doctor and one nurse. No on guard. No guards whatsoever. Um, the incredible melty man is sort of um, strapped to this bed, which obviously... You know, it might hold you or I, but a man who's melting, no chance at all. He, he escapes from the uh, escapes from the bedstrap, chases this nurse. And it's it's really bizarre. I don't know if it was part of the plan or not. Um, this nurse is is not really particularly athletic. She's she's. I'm, I'm going to be politically correct. She is a larger lady. She is quite a big nurse. There is this whole scene in slow motion of this nurse being chased down a corridor by the incredible melting man who has well and truly started melting. Um, and then she just charges straight through a plate glass window. Um, and the, the incredible melting man catches up with her and basically it's hinted the next thing eats half her brain or something like so he's actually an incredibly melting zombie, or well, you don't know why it's hinted. Um, it's it's all the, the melting has left him unbalanced, or you know, I, it, just being in a bad, it's such a bad mood. Super strong, even though he's melting, he's getting stronger as he melts. But no scientific reason is given. But um, uh, Bird Benning's character is like a doctor who. Um, is also a close personal mm. friend of this. I say, oh no, my my friend, the astronaut, is melting and come back from space. He gets a phone call. He's escaped. Oh no, this is terrible. He escaped from the unmanned hospital with no armed guard, and that causes uh, NASA to send a general over, not an army or you know a whole load of people. They send one general, um, and then start a search party. Which in uh, he's radioactive as well, the melting man, because it was yeah. a solar flare. So, uh, Bird of Benning's character starts out on a one-man search party, which involves waving... Uh, you're right there, dude. Yeah. Which involves waving a Geiger counter around. <laughs> uh, at one point, uh, this incredible chase, he finds part of his ear, which has melted off, um, but doesn't find the incredible melting. He's leaving gloops and puddles. You see loads of long 
sort mm. of shots of this man melting. He murders a fisherman also somewhere out in the on a river, you know, an, an angler somewhere on a river. They find a decapitated head later. The the doctor who's leading this one man search party abandons it to go and pick up the general from the airport. <laughs> it really is like totally ill conceived. Um, the other notable thing that makes this really bad, and you've been a film student, you've mm. made this uh, doctor and his wife have these long conversations because they're all close personal friends of yeah. uh, of the incredible melting astronaut bloke. And you know you're supposed to film conversations from certain angles to yeah, continuity. Uh, yeah. the, the camera hops around all over the place. Like one minute you're looking at the wife's face and she's looking at him. Then it's over his shoulder and then they're over the other side of the room. And halfway through a sentence it all popped over. I have no idea who planned the shots or who edited this. Um, or it just might be though they might they need to do so many takes that Quite yeah. possibly, quite possibly. But the, the film suddenly starts to fall over on a, a basic filmmaking level. Now, this is student film mistakes. Mm. They've obviously got a full crew. They're shooting on film. Um, and it all falls apart from there. As the, the, the plot is is thin to begin with and the acting is terrible. The one thing it has going for it is the actual melting of the man itself is quite convincing. Mm. Creates... I said I have seen it ages ago yeah. and I can vaguely remember it. But it takes... There are endless, endless shots of the incredible melty man just stood there looking at potentially what might be his next victim. He never bloody actually gets on and does it. Um, so he looks at them and then two scenes at... later they find the body, is it? Yeah. Uh, well... Um... It's, it's really, really strange. Usually, I mean, there are there are endless scenes of the melty man running along, and then he stops, looks at the camera, and some more of him has melted. Um, when he does kill people, usually there there's the usual, instead of running away from this slow-moving melting man, people just stand there and get mauled by the melting man. Um, but at one point, he does get his arm chopped off by someone. It's really bizarre. Uh, he kills the general, which mm. I, I, I'm not even going to say the word spoilers for that one. Um, this, this, <laughs> I, I, there are some nonsensical. This, the script is is appalling, and the, the you know the, the shooting. The only thing that it has going for it are the effects of the melting man, and even that is utilised badly in the editing. When he kills the general, the general he, he basically knocks on the door. <laughs> the general opens it. The incredible melting man is stood there. The general goes, Steve! <laughs> and then the melting man attacks him. Then they find the general dead in the next the next scene. It's like, Mental. did they plan more tension? I don't I don't know what the, the plan was. The ending makes no sense at all. The um the doctor says uh, and then there's a sheriff who knows something is going on, but is far too stupid to figure it out. Um, and this doctor, oh, it's it's Steve. He's come back from space and he's melting. And the the sheriff, well, you should have told me this earlier. He's not like, what the fuck are you talking about? He's just like, oh, Abadol the melting man, <laughs> you know. So they go after him, and at one point he says, as he melts, he's getting stronger. We can't kill him. I need to find out why before he melts. And they never find out. <laughs> they just. They just all these questions they ask about what's happening, they resolve none of it. And I can't really give away the ending because I'm sure some people will maybe even be stupid enough to go out and watch this. Uh, 
the ending is just completely everything they set up falls apart completely. Every reveal you think there is going to be, they just oh fuck it, let's just, let's just finish this now. <laughs> Kill the fucker. Do you know what I mean? Um, it like the only thing that stops it from being so bad, it's bad, is that there is a quite a lot of effort went into the melting man himself. Yeah. He looks quite convincing. Um, it's just a shame that if, if they'd have tried just a bit harder, they probably could have come up with, um, if not a cult classic, uh, you know, a bit of a sleeper hit, I think. And mm. it is. I've, I am going to put it in So Bad It's... Um, I am going to put it in the So Bad It's Great. Um, I wouldn't want to watch it again in a hurry, but it's mm. one of those, if you had a, a group of friends around with a lot of beer, uh, you could rip this movie to shreds. Yeah, it sounds like it's supposed to be a kind of maybe... A take on things like the Incredible Colossal Man and the Incredible Shrinking Man yeah, just and all that the, lot. The you know? title, it's you know, it's parodying. Yeah, but it takes itself seriously. It's definitely yeah. not a spoof or, a, or anything like that. It's not intended to be funny. Mm. Um, it's just it's just some of the basic filmmaking mistakes in editing, script writing, acting, and all camera sorts. work. Yeah, camera work. It fails on so many levels. Um, but it it is. It is quite spectacularly, almost sort of cringeworthily sort of um, bad. But uh, that's that, that's all I'm going to say. That's the uh, incredible mm. melting man from 1977. Yeah. Alas, not in the same league as uh, Deathbed, The Bed That Eats, or Let Night Call of the Leapers, five or, or Let Five, or Shark Attack Three. Um, but definitely better than Monster. <laughs> that. And uh, I will certainly endeavour to try and restore us to the the bizarre quality that we mm. had before. Um, so, yeah, I have an interesting one lined up. You have week. an interesting one. I think you're going down the Troma line. Fantastic. We've not featured any Troma films on this so far. Until so next it's, episode. Long, it's long overdue. But yeah, yeah that was uh, my So Bad It's Great. That was The Incredible Melting Man of 1977. Um, just about justifiably so bad it's great. Excellent. Superb. And that brings us to the end. We have reached the end. Um, oh, it's time to go bye-bye. Yeah, this one has been a bit of a laugh. I've, in case you're struggling, my uh, my lovely West Country accent that I've been told I have, somewhat tempered by the fact that I have got a fucking horrible cold. And I'm more London accent's been tempered by the fact that I've been living in Brizzle for the last 25 years. I don't know what kind of accent that was that time. Was that vaguely West Country or maybe Norfolk, yeah. I think? <laughs> so uh, I'm somewhat fueled on painkillers and a ventilin inhaler and all manner of stuff. Yeah. And, well, I mean, you're just... You, I'll just make it. I'll just have a can of We've reached the end of episode six. I think it's been quite a funny one. Um, and looking at a lot less ground hum, I think, this one. This is going to be good. Um, all that is left is uh, basically to say please uh, I'm obviously listening to the podcast now but keep an eye on the website it's yeah. w- tell your friends if you like it absolutely it's www.crashandburn.co.uk where you can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook send us emails about how much you like the show or how much you hate us absolutely um, you could do all those things. You yeah. can you can subscribe to the podcast in a podcast receiving type thing, mm-hmm. and do the same on iTunes if that's what you prefer to do. All right, there you go. I think you're going to talk about your radio station. Yeah, again. Or if you want to hear some nice heavy metal, 
Tune in to the BTFM Sunday Rock Show every Sunday, 93.2 FM in the Bristol, UK area, www.bcfm.org.uk to the world. Outstanding. So that was episode six of the Crash and Burn Movie Podcast. I'm Jim Cogan. I'm John Wisby. Good night. Goodbye. Goodbye.